Okay, we are, we are live. We have Alexander Berkurs with us in London, and we are very honored, very privileged, and very happy to have with us the one and only Mr. Scott Ritter. Scott, Alexander, how are you guys doing? I'm doing great. Well, I'm, I, I, I'm very well. I hope, uh, I, I'm very, very, very well and very delighted to have Scott on our program. I think this is going to be an exciting program. I hope it's going to be, a, well, I know it's going to be an extremely informative program. Can I just say, Scott hardly needs introduction. He's one of the people who was my absolute hero when I was, you know, 20 years ago when there was the conflict in Iraq and he stood out courageously um, against the rush to war then. Um, I didn't know so much about him before in the 1980s, the work that he was doing as a weapons inspector in the Soviet Union, but he's written a marvellous book on the subject and one which, frankly, everybody who really wants to understand what the construction of peace is all about and the importance of peace is all about should read i mean it's absolutely wonderful book and, and, and frankly, Alexander, a, i've got and i've got the information to yeah. uh scott's substack as well as the link to the book in the description yeah. box down below and i will also have it as as a pinned comment as well when the live stream is over so before you get started alexander and scott let me just say a quick hello to everyone that is watching us on Rockfin, on Odyssey, on Rumble, on YouTube, and on the Duran.locals.com. And to our moderators, to our awesome, amazing moderators. I see Zarael with us. I think I saw Valies in the house as well. And I'm sure more moderators will be joining as the stream rolls on. So, um, UA, also UA is in there as well. So, Alexander, Scott, let's just, uh, let's begin. Let's, let's start begin. This, uh, this live stream. I pass it over to you two gentlemen. Well, let, me well, just, okay. let me just say one thing. Uh, I appreciate you pointing out the moderators because they are sort of the unspoken heroes in this uh, social media world here. Um, I've learned the uh, immense values of value of having a high quality mo uh, moderators on, on my Telegram channel and uh, also in the YouTube, um, there are there are a lot of disruptive elements out there that can um, that can make this experience very unpleasant and very unwieldy. Um, the NAFO people and um, people that it, and um, I want to apologize in advance to your moderators because I know that I bring a lot of that with me when I uh, when I come on a show like this. So uh, hopefully I don't uh, make their experience. Uh, too unpleasant, but I, I, I'm glad that you brought it up because they are really uh, sort of the unspoken heroes of this, uh, this this new social media world that we live in of interactive, um, uh, you know, discussions and debate. So I apologize for interrupting. I just wanted to highlight how important I think it is the role that the moderators play. Yeah, our moderators are rock stars, absolute rock stars. Alexander, Scott, let's get rolling. Well, as I said, the other thing to say about Scott is, of course, he's a a, 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 a major in the U.S. Marine Corps, a absolutely top strategic planner. He was there with Norman Schwarzkopf when there was the war in 1991, 1990-91, that's right. Um, so he's also somebody who understands war and he understands conflict. And we are in the, in the middle of a war, something he's always 
fought to prevent, can I say, but something which he understands also, which unfortunately cannot be said, or so it seems to me, for many of our leaders or many of our journalists. So we are in a war situation. And Scott, you've just been to one of the countries that's been involved in this war, which is, of course, Russia. You've traveled around the country. You've been interviewed by people there. You've met many people there. You've gained an impression of what the mood is. And it's not easy to visit Russia nowadays, at least from the West, or not especially easy. What were your overall impressions? Did you find people worried, stressed, demoralized? hopeful? Um, are they informed about things? Do they talk about these things? Um, what What was your sense about the solidity of the political situation? Well, let me start off by saying that the Russian, uh, the, the Russian people that I met, and as you pointed out, I, I met a, a broad spectrum of people from high-ranking officials down to the man and woman on the street and everybody in between, uh, working class people, bureaucrats, um, you name it, I met it. Um, they're extraordinarily well informed. So I think there's sometimes there's a misperception out there that uh, the Russian people are prisoners to uh, Russian propaganda and they are ignorant of the reality. They just don't know what's going. They know everything that is available on uh, public sources. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I was over there, and uh, you know, I, I have my uh, I'm, I'm a dinosaur, so I have an AOL. Uh, email account, as you know, and you probably chuckle every time you send me an email saying what a loser that guy is. But, uh, you know, I had, but I couldn't access that and I couldn't access Facebook uh, while I was in Russia because they have, the, the government, of course, takes the block. And I suffered in silence for a little while until I brought it up to someone and they said, well, why don't, let me install a VPN. And uh, I went, oh, what? And they said, yeah, let me install a VPN. Boom, boom, boom. Total connectivity. Uh, the, 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 the fact of the matter is every Russian has a VPN. There is nothing blocked in Russia. They read everything. They know everything. And these are people who have an insatiable appetite for information. Um, the idea that the, that, that the Russians are these uh, automatons who just blindly follow their dictator, Vladimir Putin, who tells them what to do, is as far removed from reality as possible. I will say that... Um, I experienced overwhelming patriotism, overwhelming patriotism. People need to understand that um, the people who were opposed to this war have largely fled Russia. They're gone. And to many Russians, it's good riddance. Please open the door. We're not going to hinder you. Leave. Go, 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 go. The people that remain are people who believe in Russia, who are dedicated to Russia, and who are firmly Russian patriots. But that doesn't mean that they are blind to what's going on. Almost without exception, no matter whom I met, they said, we are behind Russia, we support Vladimir Putin, but we have questions. And one day we're gonna ask these questions and we want answers, we expect answers. Um, because they recognize that everything isn't perfect, everything isn't a bed of roses, everything isn't wonderful and utopia, uh, that there, are, there, are, there were problems. There are problems and they have questions, but they also understand, and this is something that people need to get through their heads, that um, from the Russian perspective, this is a conflict not between Russia and Ukraine, but between Russia and the collective West, and that this conflict is existential in nature. 
Um, this is why when I visited Volgograd, um, which I have to tell you was for me one of the most emotional um, uh, visits of my, of my time, of a very emotional trip, but to go to um, Mami of Kurgan, um, where the, you know, the, was the centerpiece of the battle, the struggle for Stalingrad uh, between the Soviets and the Nazis. Um, you walk up a hill that is the grave, literally the gravesite of 35,000 uh, Soviet soldiers to see the giant statue of the motherland calls and to understand what that means. The mother, a female, someone who gave birth to a Russian child uh, is calling her children forward to defend the motherland. The motherland is sending her children to their deaths, the possible deaths, not because she wants to, but because she has no choice, because Russia has been attacked. And then you superimpose that image with another statue, which is the grieving mother holding her dead son in her arms, the tears forming the pool around her. And you understand the, the sacrifice that, that is entailed by sending your children forward. And this isn't just history. It is history. It's important history. It is the reality. Russians visit this place. Russians know their history. And for the average Russian, I don't have to explain this. As soon as I start talking about it, they go, yeah, we got it. We, this, this is what we feel. This is in our heart. They are in an existential struggle for their survival. Now, if you live in Moscow or you live in St. Petersburg, um, you will find a class of uh, citizen that... Um, is a little bit removed from that. These are people who are very, uh, like you find in any city. I'm not picking on them, I'm just stating the reality. They're very materialistic. <laughs> They're interested in, you know, what restaurant we're gonna eat at tonight, uh, what clothing, what suit I'm gonna wear, what dress I'm gonna wear, how I look, how is my, uh, you know, uh, you know their, their TikTok or their Instagram or their, this, the same kind of nonsense that exists in the West I call it superficial or shallow. It, it overwhelms both Moscow and St. Petersburg. And it's, it's a reality. They're not anti-Putin, but they don't care. As long as they're able to continue in their comfort, they're not engaged. These aren't the people rushing off the volunteer to fight. But as soon as you leave the big city, it changes. I was introduced to the, uh, to, to the music of um, a, a musician who I think his first name is Andre. I can't forget and remember his last name. It begins with a B. But he plays the uh, push-button accordion like all great cult you know, cultural <laughs> musicians do. But there's a song he's saying called uh, The Combiners. Um, and I, I just encourage everybody to go listen to that song because um, it, it just it's the reality of Russia outside of Moscow, the reality of Russia outside of St. Peter's. It's about the men in the Volgograd region who get up every morning, and, uh, and drive the, the harvesters, the giant harvesters that bring in the crops, the rye, the wheat. Um, and as he says, uh, they're not woke. Uh, they, don't, they don't have a, a, a V contact page. They're not on the internet. They don't shop at these stores. They just work long, 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 long days. Um, they drink and he gave, the, you know, it's a cute little thing. It gives the chemical formula for ethanol, which is moonshine and, and things like that. Um, but that's Russia. That's the reality of Russia. Those are the people that make Russia work. Those are the people that get up every morning, go to the factories, get up every morning, harvest the crops, just like in America, the heart and soul, the bread and butter, the, the salt of the earth. And they existed. They are patriotic. They are from the earth. They are Russia. They define Russia. And, um, 
Anybody who thinks that you can break the will of these people, you can't. It's unbreakable will. It's deeply patriotic. And again, they support their leader, Vladimir Putin. They have questions. They have questions. Just because they drive a harvester doesn't mean their brain stopped working. In fact, on that harvester, the long hours they put in, they have a lot of time to ruminate, reflect. They have questions, many questions, but they're not going to let these questions get in the way of support they have for Russia in this conflict, which is an existential conflict between Russia and a collective West, which is determined to destroy Russia. And the Russians know this. The other thing I, I picked up on, well, I mean, so when you talk about hopelessness, there's no hopelessness there. There's firm determination. Are they demoralized? Far from it. Firm de demor uh, determination. Are they, you know, are these the USA, USA types? USA, U no, because the USA, USA types I call sunshine warriors. They're there when everything's going well. They're there when the weather is warm, when there's no sacrifice. Um, uh, the, these aren't, these are the winter soldiers. These are the winter warriors. These are the guys and gals that would be there no matter what. They're never going to lose their resolve. They are behind their country 100%. Um, and they're enabled by this, by the fact that Russia is working right now. Anybody who thought economic sanctions was going to have an impact on Russia, travel to Russia. The first city I landed in was Novosibirsk, third largest city, fastest growing economy, the fastest growing economy. They have billions of dollars pouring in from outside investors to, to be invested in Russia. Russia is thriving. There's construction taking place everywhere. The other thing is, all the money that those oligarchs used to make in Russia by stealing Russian resources and then taking it out, places like London and Monaco and elsewhere, that money can't leave anymore. But it's still being made. And it's being reinvested in Russia. City planners used to talk about how difficult their budgets were, just like everybody. You know, well, you have a limited amount of money, everybody asking for it. Now what they're saying is we are calling people up saying, hey, we got some money. Want to do a project for us? They got more money than they know what to do with. Now, some of the questions that people ask is, hey, if we have this much money, why do we still have, you know, some problems here? You know, there's questions about the bureaucracy. There's questions about corruption. There's, que there's questions out there to say that Russia is perfect is wrong. But the Russian economy is not faltering. It's succeeding. It's thriving. And it's going to thrive down the road because Russia's learned something the West hasn't. That there's a world outside of the out of Europe and the United States. There's a big world out there that does business on a daily basis, and uh, right now they're doing business with Russia, and Russia is doing business with them, and things are going pretty good. So the idea that you're going to break Russia economically that's failed. Russia is succeeding, uh, and the idea that you're going to break the spirit of the Russian people that will never happen. Um, do they want this war? No. Almost everybody wish this war never happened. These aren't people that sit there and froth at the mouth. And the fact is, the further you get away from the Donbass, the closer you get to the Donbass, the more you get people who say this war was inevitable, we had no choice but to go into this war that we've been in, war has been in, you know, going on since 2014. Um, and you get that emotion, that dynamic. But the further removed from that, you have people saying, I don't know, um, should we have gone in? 
I don't, I, I don't, I don't agree with going in. Maybe we could have done something different because it's less personal, less emotional. Uh, they didn't have relatives in Lugansk and Donetsk. They didn't have people in Mariupol. They didn't see what happened in Odessa. They didn't participate in that. They weren't at Maidan and understanding the right sector and the role that these neo-Nazi organizations played in suppressing Russian language, Russian culture, etc. But that debate's done. No one's no one's talking about that anymore. They're talking about we are in an existential struggle with the collective West that has turned Ukraine into a weapon against us. And so they are determined to win this conflict. And oftentimes the definition of victory that's put out by the average Russian uh, far exceeds that which has been articulated by the Russian government to date. And so there's a potential political problem for the Russian government that if they take an off-ramp, a diplomatic off-ramp, uh, that allows um, the perception of an uh, anti-Russian element in Ukraine to continue to exist, the cancer to exist, that this will be a big political problem for Vladimir Putin, that the, the Russian people, having bought into this existential crisis, uh, believe that there has to be a solution that addresses that very issue. And that issue is Ukraine, the weaponization of Ukraine. And so sadly for um, the people of Ukraine, um, by allowing yourselves to be used as a proxy by the West, you may lose your nation because there is a growing sentiment in Russia that this ain't over until it's over. And what I mean by over is lights out for Ukraine as it currently exists. I just think you lots of things there. Scott. Can I just first of all start by talking about the economy? Because this is what I used to mainly do. I mean, I wasn't a I'm not a person, as we know many times, I've said this, who's a military person. But economics, the economy, the Russian economy was something I always used to talk about. And I always used to say people are underestimating it. They this talk about it being a gas station, masquerading <laughs> as a country is completely wrong. Alex and I have done lots and lots of programs about this. Nobody would ever say that I was somebody who took a downbeat view about the Russian economy. Even I have been astonished at how it has shrugged off the sanctions. I, I mean, it, it, it was a surprise to me how resilient the economy proved to be in the face of the sanctions, how it absorbed the sanctions blow and came out and came out strong. And indeed, not just strong, but arguably stronger. And I think this is something that um, I'm going to say it. I don't think even the Russian government expected. I You're think right. they were not sure at all before the conflict began. I think this is making them extremely nervous. And I think a lot of the decisions that were made in the first weeks and months of the war were influenced by this. I think they were extremely nervous about what was going to happen with the economy. They didn't know exactly what the sanctions were going to be. They were fully prepared for a big economic crisis. They weren't sure how the population would react, both to the sanctions and to the fact that this, um, you know, that the, the country was finding itself in a war situation. And I think that the government was astonished both at the strength of the economy and at the degree to which the wider public, the Russian population, understood very quickly what was at stake and um, 
as you said, rallied to the defense of the motherland. And if you know anything about Russians, you'll know how important the latter is. And the most interesting thing about this conflict is it's been going on now for a year and a half. And my sense, just, you know, from following opinion polls, reading comments, is that the mood in Russia, exactly as you say, has actually got harder. In other words, we have found that instead of anti-war sentiment rising in Russia, it's been, if anything, the diametric opposite. As you correctly say, there's a determination to see this thing through to the end. Now, I have to say, I think in the latter, in respect of the latter, I think the actions of the Western leaders have been nothing short of disastrous. And I do wonder sometimes about the kind of advice about Russia that they're getting. I mean, supplying German tanks to Ukrainian soldiers who doorbind crosses on them <laughs> to Russia in the Donbass. I mean, that was a crazy thing to do. I mean, the stupidest possible thing that you could have done. And the way people talk about Russia and the language that is directed at this country, of course, it is going to make people in Russia feel the way they do. And I come back to this because, of course, you have the job of you know, providing advice. You're an intelligence officer. You're a member of Veterans Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, one of the few really good institutions left, as far as I'm concerned. I mean... What kind of advice do Western leaders get nowadays? I mean, do they do they believe their own myths? I mean, do they get information about Russia that makes sense? Did they really think when they ordered all those sanctions that the economy was going to collapse like a house of cards? I mean, is that what they thought? You know, here's here's the thing. I mean, we just start with, uh, you know, fundamental principles. Uh, I've, I've said this uh, from the very beginning. It's something that was pounded in my head as an intelligence officer. If you don't define the problem properly, you'll never get a solution because whatever solution you're trying to come up with can't solve the problem because you haven't defined the problem properly and you're probably going to make it even worse. And so it's essential uh, when we talk about coming up with a Russia policy that we define Russia properly. But to do that, you have to be programmed into being willing to learn about Russia, to listen, to consider the Russian point of view, etc. Um, back in the Cold War, when, when I, you know, and I mentioned this in my book, I talk about this in my book, when I showed up, uh, you know, I was recruited as a first lieutenant, a junior first lieutenant, into a world of majors, colonels, and generals, uh, because my resume said that I majored in Russian history, that I had two years of Russian language, and I had published uh, two articles on Russian history in very preeminent uh, journals. So they said, this guy qualifies as a, a Russian specialist, a Russian expert. And I had spent two and a half years immersing myself in Russian uh, military art. Uh, and I had a good reputation of being somebody who, uh, who understood the Russian way of war. And so they brought me in as a junior guy and plugged me into a system full of real, honest-to-God experts on Russia. We're talking about the finest foreign area officers the world has ever seen, uh, men and women who had advanced degrees in Russian history, uh, advanced uh, 
understanding of the Russian language, who had immersed themselves in Russian uh, in Russian uh, culture, um, not because they wanted to be soft on Russia. This was the Cold War, but the, the fundamental precept of know your enemy reigned true. And so these are people who could discuss Russia and in, in the Soviet Union in depth, in detail. And the same thing with the diplomatic corps. We, we had people like uh, Jack, uh, I think Jack Smith was our, our initial deputy guy, uh, well-known Russian expert. Jack Matlock, the former uh, Russian ambassador, today's in his 90s. But at the time, this man knew more about, he had more knowledge in his pinky right now than the total knowledge of the people advising Joe Biden have in their collective brains. Um, these are genuine experts. And these are people, they're not perfect. You know, sometimes they got it wrong. Uh, but I will tell you that one of the reasons why the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty succeeded is because the people who negotiated the treaty and the people who implemented the treaty were honest to God Russian experts. So when a problem occurred and they needed to come up with a solution, these are people who had a solution that was relevant to the problem, <laughs> a solution that could be absorbed by the reality of the situation. Um, and then the Cold War ended and these people were shunted aside. I, I told this story in, in Russia. I'll tell it now for uh, for the audience. Uh, it's not secret, but, you know, I didn't didn't uh, talk about it too much. But I was recruited by the CIA while I was a U.N. weapons inspector. I was recruited twice. The first time they, they brought me in, uh, they tried to bring me into the directorate of intelligence. Um, and so I, was, I, I went down to Langley and I did my interview with the head of the um, what used to be called SOVA, Soviet Affairs. But then that became unpopular. So it was renamed... Um, Russia and East Eurasian studies, something of that nature. But um, I, uh, Oreo, Office of Russia and East Asia or, or, or Eurasian studies, something of that nature. But um, I was interviewed by the, the, the head of, uh, of that branch. And um, I talked to him and I'm a guy who literally just spent a couple of years in Russia, um, working with senior Russian officials disarming Iraq. My knowledge is top notch. Um, and he said, yeah, we don't want you. I said, why? He said, old school thinking. You're tainted by your Soviet experience. We don't want any of that. We want new thinkers. We want people to come in to reimagine Russia as it is, not as it was. I'm like, that's crazy. And it was crazy because the people they brought in uh, were, were there to manage Russia. That's, that's the term he used to manage Russia, not to know Russia, not to understand Russia. And this is the beginning of the problem that we have today, because this is how people like Michael McFaul, who is you know, former ambassador today, big, big name, Fiona Hill, Angela Stent, all the current experts developed in the 1990s. First of all, let's understand from a Russian perspective, the 1990s was literally the worst time in the world. The collapse of the Soviet Union and the near total collapse of the uh, of, of the Russian Federation. Um, one of the things that I picked up on in this trip was um, the, the fact that millions of Russians died in the 1990s. Millions of Russians died. It was, it was a near genocide. Um, most of them were men, men who committed suicide, men who drank themselves to death. The average life expectancy of the Russian uh, male dropped to uh, below 50, I think 49 years at one point in time. Um, the, the, the people that held Russia together was the Russian wife, the Russian mother, the, the, the women of Russia. They, they were strong. They, they continued to work, work two jobs, three jobs, four jobs. 
uh, and they raised a family and they got their kids educated and they saved Russia. They were salvation of Russia. But Russia was being exploited politically and economically by the collective West, by this new breed of Russian manager. And then Vladimir Putin comes along in 1999, the most unexpected uh, you know, occurrence in the, in, in the decade of Yeltsin. And they didn't know what to do about him They didn't because they couldn't manage him. They were hoping that they could. The whole idea of George W. Bush, remember, I looked into his eyes and I saw his soul. Um, no, you didn't, George. Um, you looked in the eyes of a man who said, I'm not playing this game anymore. Uh, and that's what Putin said. I'm going to bring Russia back up. And he has. Whatever you think about Vladimir Putin, I've made this statement. Some people get critical of me when I say it. Um, he is the most significant and important um, Russian political figure uh, since Joseph Stalin. And that doesn't mean they, that doesn't mean that I'm equating him to the crimes of Stalin. I'm talking about Joseph Stalin, the man who took a collapsing Soviet Union, the failure of the Lenin uh, point of view, and uh, it, surrounded by enemies and built a nation capable of withstanding the shock of the Second World War. Not a perfect leader, but a great leader, a great in terms of what he built and what existed. Uh, Vladimir Putin saved Russia. If it weren't for Vladimir Putin, Russia wouldn't exist today in its current form. And I think almost everybody agrees about that. Um, but the advisors that are there today, these are people who don't know Russia. Their main claim to fame is that they hate Vladimir Putin. That's the one thing they all have in common. They've all written PhD theses that are pretty much the same. I've read them. I've read them. Yeah. They, they all cut from the same thing. Vladimir Putin is an autocrat, anti-democracy, bad for the world. There it is in a nutshell. They never say Vladimir Putin saved Russia. If it weren't for Vladimir Putin. And why is it important to understand that? Because the Russian people know this. The people who emerged from the 1990s know what Vladimir Putin did. They know it and they appreciate it. They're able to compare and contrast the horrors of the 90s with the, 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 the relative thriving Russia that exists today. And they know how that happened and why it happened and who made it happen. Um, but our advisors to Biden and company, that's not how they see it. They're not defining the problem properly. You spoke of economic sanctions. <clears throat> Had I been advising the president of the United States at the time, I would have advised against sanctions. I would have said, Mr. President, we have more influence on the Russian economy and therefore on the Russian uh, body politic by furthering our engagement, not lessening our engagement. And if you want to bring down the Russian economy, don't encourage a divorce, uh, but get in there, and then start playing games, manipulation games, not on a big scale, half by a million cuts. I can shut down the Russian economy by being in there better than I can by pulling back and trying to starve it. Um, that's the advice I would have given. Um, I also would have uh, taken advantage of that to generate real anti-war sentiment amongst the Russian people. You know, but what we did is we tried to overwhelm them, cut them off total divorce. That was the best gift we could give them. And here's the other thing that people don't understand. Um, there's this thing called the pandemic. Remember that? How it shut down the global economy? Um, Russia had already begun the process of adapting to uh, economic shock, meaning Russia had already put in place uh, program systems, et cetera, that are designed to buffer against this kind of economic isolation and shock and dislocation. And so what we did is we played to the Russian strength. We came into a Russia that was already prepared to be separated from the global economy. And we sought to separate them further from the global economy. We played to their strengths 
and Russia observed. But you are correct. The Russian government was scared to death of these sanctions. People ask, why didn't Putin do X, Y, and Z? Well, one of the reasons is anything more than a special military operation using existing forces at stake would have required a mobilization. And Putin wasn't sure of two things. One, could the economy, the Russian economy, which was struggling to come out of the pandemic, could it survive a rapid transition to a, uh, a mobilized economy? And the answer that he came up with was no, it couldn't, that we would put at risk everything that we've Put in place here, and we still don't know what the impact of uh, sanctions will be. Many Russians thought, including Putin, he was advised that it could be a 20 to 25 percent contraction of the Russian economy, and they had to be prepared for that. So while it's contracting, you throw another monkey wrench in there, which is to mobilize 300, 500,000 working class men, pull them out of society. That could have been a death blow to the Russian economy, which then comes through the issue of politics. People don't respect the fact that Putin is an elected leader. That at the end of the day, he doesn't win elections like Saddam Hussein used to with 99%. Uh, he wins elections with 54%, 60%, etc. I mean, there's, there's an opposition. There is a political opposition there. And a lot of Putin's support um, is what, what, what I would call the, 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 the comfort people. What I mean by that is so long as the economy is working, um, they're going to they're gonna ride, hitch their horse to the ragged wagon that's pulling the economy. So you have 20, 30% of the Russian voting population, especially in the big cities, who are tied to the Western marriage with Russian economy. Um, and Putin couldn't be the guy blamed for that because if he did, he would lose that. And when you lose 20, 30% of the voting group, you lose elections and it's over. It's all she wrote. So what we did is we made that divorce on our own, we gave Putin the greatest gift. Two things, one, divorce with the West. Now the Russian population is there, they can't blame him. They have to blame the West. So they rally around Putin and now the difficult decisions that have to be made to adjust, they'll make without holding Putin account. Two, the oligarchs, the greatest weight on Putin's shoulders. These oligarchs who stole trillions of dollars worth of Russian wealth and invested it abroad were suddenly disenfranchised overnight. And now in order to survive, you have to come back to Russia and you have to reinvest your money in Russia. One of the more interesting conversations I had again was with the city planner who was like, we got more money right now than we've ever had. We don't know where to invest it. We have to bring people in to do this. Um, so the, we, we, we screwed this up big time. Our, the advisors didn't understand Russia. and They provided the absolute wrong advice. In fact, if I were a conspiracy theorist, and I'm not, I would say that the people advising Joe Biden are working for the Russian government, that they're actually <laughs> Russian uh, double agents because everything Joe Biden done, and this is not a, I mean, I'm going to say something that sounds funny, but it's, it's, it's serious. You know, in the United States, if you go to the gas pump, there's little stickers of Joe Biden. I did this. And they're pointing to the price. And it was a, it was sort of a revolt, you know, because of the, of the gas prices. But, um, you know, and thank you, Joe Biden. The Russians all sort of tongue-in-cheek would just say, hey, when you see Joe Biden, tell him thanks. We really appreciate everything he's done for us because none of this would be possible without Joe Biden. And this is the God's honest truth. Nothing, every decision that's been made by the United States, whether it's an economic decision, a political decision, or a military decision, has actually helped Russia, improved Russia's state. And I'm even getting to what they've done with Ukraine. One of the main reasons, and I won't, don't want to jump ahead too much, but 
One of the main reasons why the Ukrainian counteroffensive is failing is because of the Western equipment we've provided them. Yeah. They don't know how to use it. It's because of the Western training we provided them. We've tried to train them to be NATO combined arms warriors. They can't do it. So they're taking equipment they don't know how to use, equipment they can't maintain. They're applying it to operational art they don't understand. And they're running into a buzzsaw of the Russians falling back on their strength, doctrinal defense. And, you know, newsflash, the guy who wrote the modern version of this, Colonel General um, Romanchuk, he, uh, he wrote it while he was uh, the, the, the lead instructor at the uh, Russian Combined Arms Academy in Moscow, published the work. <laughs> they designed the defenses in uh, Ukraine or in, in uh, Novaya Rusa around his work. And then they pulled him out of the academy and they put him in charge. So understand yeah. that while we weakened the Ukrainians by giving them equipment they don't know how to use, a doctrine they don't know how to employ, etc., the Russians took the guy who invented doctrinal, modern doctrinal defense, built the defense based upon his thoughts, and then put him in command of it. So the Russians are literally playing to their strength everywhere, and we've weakened the Ukrainians. Everything we've done in this conflict, the economy, uh, look, how, look how Russia integrates with the world today. Everywhere, Russia, Lavrov, this this diplomat, instead of being isolated, everywhere he goes, the red carpet comes out. People are, hey, come on in, my new best friend, Lavrov. Um, as opposed to Blinken, wherever he goes, people are just like, we don't like you. We, we You're useless to us. Um, everything we've done has backfired. Joe Biden's policies have been horrible. And the main reason, coming back to your question, is the people advising him don't know Russia. It doesn't mean, to know Russia doesn't mean you have to be a friend of Russia. But to know Russia means you have to have the intellectual curiosity to understand Russia, to define Russia, to understand what makes Russia works. And only then can you articulate policies that either weaken Russia or, if you're smart, work with Russia to come up with a joint thing. Russia could have been, we could have gotten Russia to a negotiated settlement months ago. This war could be over. Hundreds of thousands of lives could have been saved. Ukraine could have been saved as a viable nation state. Europe would not have to go through this horrific economic deconstruction. Um, all we had to do is understand Russia. And we could have come up with a solution that when you compare and contrast what would have been with what's going to be, uh, would have made Russia a little bit weaker. We've strengthened Russia and the Russia that's going to emerge in the post-conflict is going to be a stronger Russia, a more determined Russia, and one we don't have a solution to. I completely agree with everything you said, actually. I think you're entirely right. And can I just say, uh, talking about the international reaction outside the West, I was just seeing uh, uh, earlier today the Burj Khalifa in Abu Dhabi, the tallest building in the world, 4th of June, uh, Russia Day, and it's all, all, the whole of it is the Russian flag from top yep. to bottom. I mean, it's absolutely quite astonishing. Let's, since you brought up the counteroffensive, and let's, in fact, talk about the, the offensive. You were a military planner. I mean, it was one of the things you were really very good at. Uh, I mean, you were there in 1991, as I said, with Norman Schwarzkopf. You came up with plans. Would you have advised Ukraine to launch an offensive against these enormous fortified lines? I mean, I, I am not a military expert. I look at these things. I was reading in the Daily Telegraph the other day that these lines are well, they say almost impenetrable. I mean, the, the word almost takes my breath away. 30 kilometers deep, apparently, in places. Enormously elaborate. And you're supposed to send 
a force that you've cobbled together in a few months to attack these lines uh, without an air force, as far as I can see, without much of an air defense system either, um, um, against electronic warfare. And the other side has outmatches you in guns and machines and things. I, I mean, I don't understand. I mean, you know, maybe there's something here I don't understand. But I don't understand the logic of this offensive at all. And I understand what I do understand is that we're seeing every day pictures now of tanks that we've supplied, these Leopard 2s, these Bradley infantry fighting vehicles. What I see of them is burning on the steps. There's pictures this morning of Russian soldiers wandering around them. Some are trophies. I mean, putting aside the question of the equipment and the training, is the concept of this, I mean, does it make sense? I mean, could it work? Yeah. Well, let, let, let's back up just because sometimes when I answer a question, um, people don't understand the foundation of my experience and my knowledge in answering this. And this one actually plays to one of my great strengths. Um, in, well, in um, September of 1990, I was pulled out of uh, amphibious warfare school uh, and attached to a special planning unit working for the Commandant of the Marine Corps. That's the four-star general, Al Gray, the man who invented modern maneuver warfare. Um, and <clears throat> my job, along with these other people, was to come up with alternative um, courses of action for the Marine component of, uh, of the future Gulf War, because at that time, General Norman Schwarzkopf, an Army general, went to put two Marine divisions online on the ground and charged through um, – the thickest part of the Iraqi defenses. And we're going, that's not maneuver warfare. That's stupidity. That's, uh, that's what we don't want to be doing. So I actually designed uh, a amphibious assault through the Alfau Peninsula, core-sized. Um, and when I say designed it, I'm talking about the most detailed planning uh, one could imagine. Um, and it was briefed to the Commandant of the Marine Corps, and uh, he approved it. We took it to Schwarzkopf. Schwarzkopf shot it down um, because he said, no, I, yeah, he has this army plan, which is to send, the, you know, the great Hail Mary left hook What the Marines job was to fix the Iraqis in place. And we're like, really? So you just want us to go into the trenches, grab the Iraqis and get involved in this life and death struggle where we just churn up Marine bodies? No. So I, next job I was given was they, we had this giant computer called Janus, J-A-N-U-S, Janus computer. And it's a, it's a, in fact, there's a supercomputer. Um, my job was to program in the Iraqi defenses. So I went to the CIA. I got the aerial photographs. I got all the electronic order of battle. And I built the Iraqi defenses from the ground up down to the squad level. Um, and then you have to populate it. So you have to go in there and, um, and, and, and put in morale factors, ammunition, sustainability factors, training. Every unit gets it. We did the research on each unit. and We tried to replicate that. We did that with the Marine units as well. And then we built in doctrinal, you know, defense, how it would operate, et cetera. And we lined them up. We did the two divisions. Hey, did the diddle straight up the middle. And the Marines got their butts kicked. Went in there, grind, 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 attack stops. Now, we can say two things. One, Marines will never win. That's not the answer. Two, we programmed the computer wrong. So then we had to go back and, and reprogram it, readjust it. And we did this over right, from October, November until early December, this is what I did 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I slept there, I ate my meals there because this was important. We had to get a plan, a concept to General Boomer 
uh, the, the Marine commander so they could launch this attack. And by the time we finished doing this, I finished doing this because I was the officer in charge. Um, we finally came up with a course of action that had the Marines successfully breaching the Iraqi defenses and able to push through to Kuwait City. Um, and we sent that to them. One of the proudest things in my life is that um, when the Marines began their attack, um, everything I simulated exactly happened. We punched through the lines. We rolled through the Iraqis. Uh, General Schwarzkopf, we actually disrupted his plan because he he didn't want the Marines taking Kuwait City on day three. He wanted the Marines to be in the trenches sucking in Iraqi reserves. Instead, we punched through and we took Kuwait City and we prompted an Iraqi retreat that led to the highway of death that led to Colin Powell stopping the war uh, prematurely. So in many ways, the Marines' success was the failure of the campaign because we, we didn't destroy the, 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 the Republican Guard. But uh, that's another story. The reason why I bring that up is when I was reading about the Ukrainians, NATO has its own version of Janus. It begins with a guy like Cora or something of that nature. It's a, it's a computer. There were NATO programs in all that stuff. And the Ukrainians sat down with NATO and built, did the same thing for the, for the Russian defenses, the same thing. And they, they sat there and they, they programmed it in. Um, but then I listened to what they're talking about. Assumptions. Assumptions are the death of people. Don't assume anything. No. Know what you're going to do. They assume that they, they pick. If you look where the Ukrainians attacked, they attacked at the juncture between the 70th Regiment and the 291st Regiment of the 42nd Guards Motorized Rifle Division, right, right in Zaporizhia. Why? Because the 70th Regiment, when they first went into uh, Ukraine back in, uh, in March last year, had a tough time of it. Um, they, they, they got slapped around. They got overextended. They took heavy casualties. Um, and so a lot of the soldiers that were in the 70th Regiment are mobilized soldiers. So people who were mobilized and brought in and reintegrated into the 70th. <coughs> so the assumption was that the 70th is a defeated unit uh, equipped with, uh, or, you know, it's built around soldiers with poor morale, poor training. They're not going to function. So imagine programming that into your computer. Then you have the 291st, which is only marginally better. But if you pick the seam between that defense, um, because you assume that the Russians can't communicate, that's the other thing, poor communication, uh, poor re response times, et cetera. You pick that seam, you'll punch through, go in deep, and begin the disruption of the Russian rear area where their artillery is, et cetera. And now once you disrupt the artillery, you force displacement, the Russians lose firepower superiority that is built into their defensive doctrine. And now you flood the zone with the follow-on brigades. And now you have your punch through to Azov. And that's what they, that's what they did. They programmed the damn computer wrong. Mm -hmm. What they did is they came in the 70th, the, the, the boys didn't run. They, they also programmed in that, that, that they, they didn't understand that a retreat, tactical retreat, is not a strategic withdrawal. If you read, if you had taken the time to read Roman Chuck's article that he published in March um, on defense, you'll know that the first line of the defense, before you even get to the first line of the defense, you have the flexible zone. The flexible zone is a series of strong points that are designed for you to come and push. And what they'll do is they'll hold in certain areas and they'll make it soft in other areas. So as you push, 
where you go through is where they want you to go through. They suck you in. So as you come in with your 47th Brigade, your 33rd Brigade, with your Leopard tanks and your Bradley Infantry fighting vehicles, and you come pushing in, the the, the, the Russian troops from the 70th Regiment, you know, that horrible unit with those poorly trained boys that weren't going to run, they withdraw. As they withdraw, you come in, and where you're coming in is the pre-registered fire zone of all the Russian artillery in the world. It comes in and just blasts the living crap out of you. And then those boys that ran, they didn't run. They went back to the next line of defense, reorganized. And after you got finished blasting, they counterattacked and they pushed you right back. And the end result, they lose 71 dead. You lose 1,500 dead. That's a, a casualty ratio that'll happen all the time. The other thing is, uh, before this war started, again, we have to get into planning assumptions. What planning assumptions did the Ukrainians make? I think they made certain planning assumptions that their air defense was going to be able to hold at bay uh, Russian helicopters and Russian fixed air. But leading up to this whole time, um, General Sorovikin has carried out one of the most masterful campaigns in the history of modern war. And this is the anti-air defense campaign. He has been doing this for months now. And they flood the zone with these geranium drones and other drones. They get the Ukrainians to commit while the intelligence collects. Then they send in other weapon systems. And they've been popping these things off to the point now that there is no effective air defense in the zone of conflict. So any assumptions that were made that your Iris T and your Patriots and your NASAMs and your Boops and your S-300s were going to somehow keep the Russians back, that's gone. And so the Russians now are coming in and they have a new weapon. That's the Fab 500 glide bomb. It's a precision guided weapon. They don't even have to get within the, uh, the, the envelope. They can drop it outside of the envelope of Ukrainian air defense. And the bomb comes in and hits right where it's supposed to hit. 500 kilograms, 1,000 pounds, high explosive, boom. Um, but the thing is, because there's no air defense, the Russians can bring their aircraft in even closer. And so that means that the Ukrainians are getting picked off in their distant assembly areas where they would they, 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 they made assumptions, plan assumptions, that when we begin to assemble the forces before we make a move on the line of contact, we assemble them here, and then we begin to – they're getting hit there. Not only are they getting hit there, but, gosh, those things like ammunition – fuel, command and control, they're all getting hit too. So the Ukrainians are losing all the cohesiveness that is necessary before they go in. But then the last thing too is even if it all worked uh, for the Ukrainians, and it's not, they're, they're, none of this is working, the training. See, when I built in training assumptions into Janus, I, I had to go back and research uh, a lot of Iraqi training and find their weaknesses. And I had to do the same thing for Marines. Not all Marine units are trained the same way. Um, you know, some Marine units have better commanders than others. And uh, some had, uh, they had a different training focus. They, they'd been focused on doing a, uh, a, a MU operation in the Westpac and not uh, working in 29 Palms, attacking, you know, fortifications. So different, different levels of training, experience, et cetera, had to be factored in. All of these Ukrainian units went to Grafenvor or to another NATO training facility, and they were trained on NATO combined arms operational theory. Now, I did this for the Marine Corps. Uh, it took me two and a half years uh, for, for my battalion to be able to say, we're ready to do this. We're ready to do this. Uh, they tried to get the Ukrainians to do this in a month. Yeah. Ain't going to happen. So these guys are going in with a computer, Cora, that they're programming wrong, 
And then they're coming in with certain assumptions that you're going to be able to do a passage of lines. You're going to be able to do uh, a side-by-side assault coordination. Uh, you're going to be able to coordinate fires. You're going to be able to suppress air defense, all this. None of it worked. They just went straight into what the Russians had pre-planned, got sucked in, got hammered. And the equipment didn't work. Again, the Finns gave them these um, two SRs, they call them, the modified leopards with this fancy little thing on it. <laughs> doesn't work. You know why the Finns gave it to them? Because it doesn't work. I mean, let's just be honest here. The Finns <laughs> gave them something that doesn't work, and they knew it didn't work. They knew that as you push the mines aside with the dirt, um, these the follow-on elements, half the Bradleys that were destroyed were coming in behind the 2SR, hitting mines that were picked up by the 2SR, blowing them up. And now you have a narrow lane, you get this bottleneck, and now the Russians are hitting you with the ATGMs and the artillery, and it just goes to hell in a handbasket. And that's why you had this horrific little thing. But that's what we could see. What we weren't seeing, what was happening behind the line, too, is that the columns were being hit by the helicopters and uh, being struck. This counteroffensive failed before it began. And unless something dramatically changes, and there's no reason to believe it's not, mm-hmm. um, this counteroffensive has no chance of succeeding. None. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I have to say, that is how it, that is how it looks to me. I mean, are, are you saying, Scott, I mean, you, you, that in fact, all this training, that it actually did weakened Ukraine. In some ways, it made Ukraine both more confident about launching this offensive. And at the same time, it made their force more incoherent. They're trying to do something that is far beyond their reach. When 100%. Fact, if, they'd, if they were doing something which was perhaps closer to what they normally do, that might have actually worked better for them. 100%. Look, the yeah. the right thing to do for the Ukrainians, the right thing all along, would have been to take these these uh, these brigades and turn them into uh, mobile fire brigades and play to the Russian. Right now, you're playing to the Russian strength. You literally are attacking where the Russians want you to attack. You're attacking defenses that are designed to destroy you, uh, commanded by the man who designed it all. I mean, you couldn't pick, if you were going to pick all the strengths for the Russians, they have every one of them. You're coming in with nothing but weaknesses. There's no advantages for the Ukrainians. (laughs) Russia becomes less capable when being compelled to carry out offensive operations uh, because they've spent the last eight months training for just this very thing. Um, The Russian objective is to wear the Ukrainian army down to near zero so that when they do transition over to the offensive, and by the way, I had a fascinating conversation with somebody earlier today um, who, who, who said, you know, the Ukrainians are doing the Russians a huge favor because in order to create these corridors into the Russian defense, the Ukrainians are removing all the landmines, all the obstacles, everything. You know, the funny thing about superhighways is they work both ways. Mm. So if you create a superhighway to the Russian defenses, and then your military is destroyed. You've created a superhighway now for the Russians to flow to you into your into your death. And if the Ukrainian military is gone, all of these twelve brigades destroyed. Um, you know the, the 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 there's nothing to stop the Russians. What I would have done is built my own barriers. I would have put the onus on the Russians to move forward uh, into my defenses, um, and I would have used the mobility and the firepower that was accrued by this to 
to force the Russians to come into my air defense, I would have done my air defense differently because it's a different mentality in laying out your air defense. If you're trying to project air defense forward, you've got to have your air defense closer to the line so that you can stop the Russians behind their lines. That makes them more vulnerable. But if I want to bring the Russians to me, I put my air defense back in a layered area, forcing the Russians to come in towards me, higher risk, mm -hmm. et cetera. And then I would move it around a lot uh, so that Russian intelligence can't target it, et cetera. And I would have done my defense the same way. Small units that as the Russians come in can coalesce, hit them, push them back, pull it back. And now you do what they say they wanted to do all along, make this war too expensive for Russia. And if you make it too expensive for Russia, then Russia will be compelled to come to the negotiating table uh, where they have to give something up. I don't I'm not saying that uh, what Russia would give up or what, what I'm just saying that that's a better way of doing it than what you're doing right now, because you are literally playing to the Russian strengths. I've actually heard a, I've actually heard a Russian actually make precisely the same point that the whole that, that for them. The, the biggest uh, worry at the moment is not that the offensive succeeds, but that the offensive is called off. <laughs> that yeah. Ukraine actually calls it off. Exactly. And does exactly what you said. Now, I mean, I don't know whether that's uh, you know, how, how high up the thinking to that goes, but I, I, I have actually heard people, people make that precise very point on the Russian side. Can I, you were talking about the equipment, the, the Leopard 2 tanks, the Bradley Infantry Fighting Vehicles. I, I always remember right at the very beginning when the US was supplying M777 howitzers, you came along, you wrote a piece. I didn't remember, I think it was RT actually, but it was somewhere anyway that you wrote. RT. About. You said that th these guns are not really suitable for this battlefield. Can you explain what are the problems with these Leopard 2s and these Bradleys? What, what is the problem? I mean, I read all kinds of things. I mean, you know, that they're big, they're heavy, they're complex, that the Bradleys are very complex, that they require very high levels of training. But I've also seen some Ukrainians say that they are just the wrong vehicle for this kind of terrain, that they work well in cities, that they work well in built-up areas in Western Europe, that they work well in deserts. They don't work so well in the steppe lands. What are your thoughts about this? I mean, have you any views about this? Um, well, let's let's just start with um, when you buy a weapons system, uh, you're buying it for a particular mission capability that is linked to doctrine, linked to operational art linked to an entire uh, systemic way of supporting it. So we don't just buy a Bradley vehicle. Uh, everything about the Bradley has to relate to doctrine. To give you an example, 25 millimeter chain gun. <clears throat> Why do we have that? Why did we pick that, that weapon? It's designed to be able to suppress most non-hardened targets, light armor vehicles, anti-tank uh, weapons, etc. You also have a tow two missile system on board. That gives you the ability to reach out and touch targets the armor targets 4,000 meters away. The Bradley's not supposed to fight in isolation. It's supposed to fight with a uh, infantry armored team. So it's supposed to be armored vehicles with you, maneuvering together with you, providing additional firepower suppression. And you're working it together with artillery systems that have, um, that, that have the ability to communicate, coordinate, and integrate their fires. So the Bradley is part of a systemic way of waging war. And for the United States, the Bradley is capable of being used. 
because we designed it and we know what we want it to do. We know what its limitations are, et cetera. Plus we can maintain it. Uh, we, we built it um, knowing uh, you know, what its maintenance requirements are. We have all the spare parts. We have the people trained to do this, not only in the depots, but people up front. So if the Bradley breaks down, the crew itself can do a certain level of maintenance. The battalion can bring in other maintenance people. Brigade can bring in more and you can keep the Bradley in the fight longer um, this way. <coughs> the problem by just giving the Bradley to the Ukrainians is um, they, first of all, they're not used to the system. We take a guy straight out of boot camp. Uh, we train him to be a soldier, and then we send him to, you know, Bradley school. And uh, they learn all about the Bradley and all that. So the only thing they know is the Bradley. Now we have Ukrainians that are doing BMPs. They've been doing BMPs all their life. They understand this, the brutal simplicity of the BMP. And now you're turning them over to the Bradley. Um, and they're going, Wow. I mean, it's cool. It's, a, it's, a, it's an American vehicle. It looks nice. you got 25 millimeter chain gun. Goes pop, 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 pop when you want. And you, you pull up the toe and aim it and fire it. And wow, it's sexy as hell. Um, and then it breaks. And they're like, mm, how do we fix it? Don't know. What does the book say? Well, my instructor told me, but he speaks English. I speak it. And the translator wasn't very good. Um, and now they have to tow it out of the battlefield back all the way to the rear to get repaired. That doesn't work. It's also being employed incorrectly. The Bradley cannot survive by itself. End of story. It is not a tank. It looks impressive, but it's not a tank. And when you move the Bradley forward as if it's a tank, it's going to die a violent death every single time. And that's what's happening. The Bradley is the worst system to ever give to the Ukrainians because they don't know how to use it. Uh, and the Bradleys that we're giving them aren't the good Bradleys. It's called the ODS, the Operation Desert Storm variant, which means that it's a Bradley that was conceived after 1991. All right. Now, I'm the Marine. My math isn't that great. But 1991, 2023, that's a lot of years. That's like 32 years. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you know, so they're getting a system that's three decades old. Two things about it. One, it's already broke. It's broke before it starts because it's been around forever. It, it doesn't work. It's, these are systems that in many cases were in a warehouse, uh, you know, mothballed. They now have to pull them out, get the engines running, get them up to a basic level of operational capability, turn them over to the Ukrainians. And now the Ukrainians are taking them. And you say to yourself, well, where are all 60 of them? They don't work. Half of the Bradleys are in the back. They can't start right now. The ones that do work come to the front line, but many of those break down before they get there. The Bradleys that make to the front line get slaughtered because they're employing them incorrectly. The Leopards are the same thing. These were systems that were in a warehouse. They pulled them out. They barely got them running. They turned them over to the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians don't know how to use them. They don't know how to employ them properly because a tank in isolation is a death trap. And so here you have Leopards, and ask yourself the following question. Why are leopards fighting alongside Bradleys? Because the leopards belong to, I believe, the 33rd Brigade. The Bradleys belong to the 47th Brigade. They never trained together. Two totally separate training cycles. And suddenly, two units that never trained together are thrown together in the most complicated kind of combat, side by side, trying to coordinate with one another. 
Why is the Bradley fighting with a with 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 a leopard when they've never trained together? Which means that the leopard and the Bradley don't know how to fight together, don't know how to complement one another, and they're doing this without adequate artillery support, without no air support, electronic warfare that doesn't work. They can't communicate. If you can't communicate, you can't coordinate. And if you've never trained with each other and you're not coordinating, what happens? A cluster, you know what, in the middle of a minefield where everybody dies, yeah. and that's yeah. what's been going on. I mean, that, that is all extremely interesting, actually. And can I just say, I mean, I, I think sometimes it's asking altogether too much of Ukrainian soldiers to fight as if they were U.S. Marines. U.S. Marines are going to be one of the best trained soldiers in the, in the world. world. In the world. And, and, and Ukrainian soldiers are going to be conscripts, reservists called up. They're not going to have that kind of level of professionalism and organization and skill. And again, do people understand this? I get I got the sense I was reading, following the British media very, very closely in advance of all the decisions to send these tanks and these infantry fighting vehicles. There's this invincible assumption. You're talking about assumptions and assumptions are dangerous things. Our equipment, our kit. Our Western kit is so superior to the Russians. If we give them our tanks, well, they'll be they'll blow away the T-72s, which is what the Russians have. They'll blow away the BMPs because ours is so much better. And just giving these kind of machines to the Ukrainians in itself is going to make them better soldiers and give them this decisive advantage. And it, it I, even I could see that it doesn't work like that. I mean, I've never been in a military situation, but you know, if you're talking about logistics, if you are asking, you can't just ask one kind of driver, for example, who's driven one sort of truck to simply jump in and and drive and maintain a completely different type of truck without proper training. You just right. don't do it. And Besides comparing one type of tank, the Leopard 2, with perhaps a T-72, maybe the comparisons are not actually quite as valid as you think they are. Maybe what you're doing, actually, is comparing apples with oranges. That, in fact, the T-72, the modernized T-72, may be more suited to this particular landscape and this particular type of war and armies than your uh, Leopard 2s, and maybe they were designed anyway for rather different purposes in the first place. I mean, these are obvious things. And I also got the sense that, at least in Europe, the militaries were not happy about supplying these this equipment to the Ukrainians, that they were aware that these problems would come about, and they were trying to get the politicians to understand it, but the politicians closed their ears and wouldn't listen. And I don't know how closely you follow the news in Germany, for example, but I mean, a, a whole string of German generals, um, former inspector generals of the German military, in other words, their equivalent of the chief of staff. They're not allowed to call themselves that because of the history. But they were basically saying, this is a huge mistake. This isn't going to work well. And they were absolutely right. No, you're, look, one of the things you learn in the, in the military, um, is we call it IPP, intelligence preparation of the battlefield. And mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes in, but 
one of the things that we used to do is um, is take a, a, a potential conflict zone and you identify your mobility corridors. Uh, you 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 basically look at the terrain and you come up with uh, go no go areas with different gradients so you could predict um, you know uh, uh, approach uh, uh, movement speeds etc where you know where you could logistically support etc so you'd look at the battlefield so you'd have an understanding of as you applied military forces uh, to the battlefield how the terrain itself would define what you do now there's a difference between the um, the way a, a, a 62-ton tank operates on a given piece of terrain and the way a, a 40-ton tank operates on a piece of terrain. Um, roads. Understand that when tanks go across roads, um, they chew the roads up. And so the roads, as they go across uh, dirt trails, they chew it up. Any water applied to that becomes a muddy morass, and maneuvering a 62-ton tank through that is far more difficult than maneuvering a 40-ton tank. Um, and so I have to believe that the Russians are professionals. I, I know they're professionals. And I have to believe that they do similar things than that, that we would do. I know that if I sat there and I looked at the order of battle of the Ukrainian forces, and I laid out my IPP template and I was doing, you know, mobility corridors towards my defensive lines, I factor in train and everything. Uh, the advance dictates itself. Because the leopard becomes constrained into where it can go, how you know where it can come in from. Once it gets to the battlefield, where it can advance on, and I sit there and go, these are the projected mobility corridors. So now I turn to my artillery and my aircraft, and I say, these are our pre-planned fire areas. This is where we're going to put minefield densities. Um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna let them. We're gonna thin out the minefield here to suck them into where we want. And then we're going to hit them with uh, artillery fired mines behind so that when they hit the main minefield, they turn around, the mines are there, they all die. Um, and you do, you win the battle before the battle begins by projecting onto the battlefield the, the, the order of battle. The weapons we provided the Ukrainians are not only insufficient in terms of maintainability and, and operation, but they limit the Ukrainians from an operational standpoint on where their mobility corridors are, how they can sustain that fight and continue that fight. We make the Russian victory that much more easier because the Ukrainian advance becomes very, very predictable because of this equipment. So the equipment doesn't work. It doesn't maintain. It can't be done operationally. And to compound things, it basically defines the direction it has to go on the road it has to go so the Russians can blow the living crap out of it before it gets to where it wants to. Can I just ask a very simple question, which is how often do these machines break down? Now, I ask this question <laughs> because uh, they are very, very complex machines. And again, my experience is not of, uh, uh, you know, tanks or anything of that kind, but of civilian vehicles, but, you know, civilian heavy vehicles. And they break down, civilian vehicles break down quite a lot. And we're not talking about vehicles that are, at least the ones I knew anywhere near as heavy or as complex as these as these uh, western machines are so how often do they break down i mean i would have thought that they must break down quite a lot and again it comes back to what you said i mean either if they do break down who's going to repair them so the crews will need to know quite a lot about what they can do to fix them and they'll presumably need to have some 
idea of what to do about fixing them when they're under fire. Because, you know, if you're in the middle of a minefield and your tank breaks down, well, that will probably require an awful lot of training and an awful lot of courage, which no doubt is a product to some extent of that training. If you're going to be able to retrieve, salvage that situation, salvage that vehicle and get it to move on again. I mean, I'm just asking this question again, because I'm just curious. I've no idea. Nobody ever talks about this in the media here. I mean, we we have an extraordinary uh, brigadier called Hamish de Breton Gordon. I don't oh, an extraordinary ever. brigadier name. Yes, but he was telling us about how Challenger 2s, you can drive them from one end of Canada to another and they never break down. Ever. And I, I, I never, ever, ever break down. <laughs> and I have to say, I, I you know, just looking at the thing and that's all i can do but just looking at it i just wonder look here's here's the reality um in peacetime and don't take my word for it i mean i'd love i wish hamish was here right now because i just I'd, I'd call him a liar straight to his face because yeah. i'll tell him straight up if you were a company commander you know that for every hour you spend in the field you have three hours of maintenance mm -hmm. you know that that's in peacetime that's best case that's where everything's going well to get your tank out there in the field, you need three hours of maintenance uh, behind to, to sustain that, uh, which means when you, when you design operations, a big part of the operation is you don't want to drive your battalion to death. All right. So you build in realistic advance rates, et cetera, with, with operational pauses designed to allow the, the tank to be maintained, brought up to order so that you can keep as many of those tanks or armored fighting vehicles uh, moving in the right direction, which is forward, not backward to get maintained. During the during uh, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, if you take a look at the Marines um, advancing on Baghdad, uh, you see the columns. An interesting fact is um, most of the, uh, the AAVs, the amphibious assault vehicles, were being towed because they done broke down, but the rate of advance was such that they had to keep moving forward. So rather than abandoning them there, they literally, we were towing half the vehicles to the front. We were towing Humvees, we were towing two and a half ton trucks uh, to keep the advance going. And thank God the Iraqis never mounted a significant counterattack because we would have been trouble because let me give you a hint, when you're towing an AAV, you're not very maneuverable. Um, and so your tactical decisions, uh, options, if called upon, are, you know, null. Um, and the army was the same way, uh, towing itself to um, because we outran our maintenance, we outran our logistics. Um, you need operational pauses. I mean, one of the great things that helped the army was the sandstorm that came up outside of Karbala early on because it caused the army to stop, have a pause. And during that pause, the army was able to do a lot of the maintenance that was necessary keep the units ready to go. Then they brought up the fuel, they brought up the ammunition, they could continue the push. The Marines weren't impacted by that sandstorm, so they just kept moving uh, through the Kut Valley and everything broke down, so they kept towing it. Um, this is the fact. So if you don't have built in to your concept of operations, sufficient operational pauses where your maintainers can come out and do the rudimentary task of just tightening the bolts, making sure the tread hasn't loosened up. Because if you don't do that, you throw a tread. And pro hint, when a tank throws a tread, it stops moving. And when it stops moving, it's dead. 
Um, and if it stops moving in a minefield or stops moving where the enemy is zeroed in, now you have to get in the business of trying to put that tread back on. You're exposed. You're going to die. So the little things. And the thing about combat is always the little things. This is the one thing you're always trained in the, in the military early on is don't overlook the little things. Yeah. Because the little things become big things very quickly. If you take the time and effort, I know you're tired, Marines. I know you've been working. I had you out there for 26 hours, and I know you're going to be up in four hours, and I know you're thinking you're going to get some sleep, and you have to eat, and you have to do basic hygiene, you have to do all that kind of stuff, but you're going to maintain the damn equipment because tomorrow when we move off the line of departure, it better not break because that's your life. So fix stuff. Clean your weapon. Take care of your kit. Make sure you, all your stuff works. Make sure the equipment works. Do the little thing. That's time and, and it takes good leadership, but it takes basic knowledge that isn't trained into these Ukrainians from the beginning. Yeah. In the Marine Corps, it's trained in you from the very beginning. Never, ever overlook the little things. The details matter. Attention to detail. Get it right. Give you an example. There's a brigade, the 81st Brigade. I think it's starting to become engaged up in the Artemis area, um, but it is a striker equipment. So it's equipped with the famous American striker vehicle. This is, of course, a wheeled vehicle. The thing about the striker vehicle is it has this automatic suspension system uh, so that you can uh, raise or lower the vehicle based upon the terrain you're on. So now, now, if you're an American and you know this from the start, you know how to adjust it and all that, but it has to be maintained all the time. And I read up the literature because I'm not familiar with the striker. I never, I never, I was in the Marine Corps. We had LAVs. <clears throat> but I went and started reading all of the army literature on striker maintenance. And mm-hmm. the best place to go is to go to where they discuss the national training center. That's at Fort Irwin, California, where we send brigades to go out there and they go through very realistic um, combat training operations. And from a maintenance standpoint, you're running into the things you're going to run into uh, if you go to war without actual shells hitting you, but your stuff breaks because you're out in the field doing stuff. And so they talked about this. You have to constantly adjust this system. If you don't recalibrate every day, the system drops and it shreds the tires. So now your tires pop, 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 pop. Now you have a system with all flat tires. Let me give you a hint. It doesn't work that way. So you need a whole bunch of spare tires now to come in. And believe me, as well-trained as the U.S. Army is, they would pop, they would shred their striker tires all the time because they would forget the little things, the little maintenance thing. So what it constantly said is you have to make sure at the end of each day you bleed this valve, you do this. It's a very complicated list of things that had to be done to do it right. And I'm like, do the Ukrainians have this? Has somebody done this and laminated it in Ukrainian language and taped it right up on the thing saying, when you shut down your system at night, make sure you bleed this valve, you do this, you do this. And then when you start it up in the morning, you have to reverse so that you don't shred your tires. Because if you don't do that, tires get shredded. And this is the reality of all the equipment we've given them, all extraordinarily maintenance. Hey, Colonel Hamish, you're full of, and I won't use a bad word because I respect your channel too much and I respect you guys, but he's full of it. You know what he's full of. Um, He's a lion sack of manure. The challenge isn't that good of a tank, Colonel, and you know it. Um, if you think it's that good, why don't you be a man? Go volunteer for the Ukrainians. Get in the lead challenger. Drive to Moscow. You'll be dead in a minute, Colonel, because the Russians have been studying your challenger tank for a long time, and they know how to kill it. It ain't that good. You know what the best battle tank is in the world today? The T-90. Yeah. The T-90 assault breaker. 
Why? Because it's new. It's designed for the purpose. When was the Challenger designed? A long, long, long time ago. And what they've done is they've taken an old design. They keep adding things to it. Ask yourself, <coughs> look at the Leopard tank. Look at the applique armor on the Leopard tank. You know, the reactive armor that you put on there so it can take out a shape charge. Uh, and look at it and tell yourself, ask yourself, is that German applique armor on a Leopard tank? No. You go, no, 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 that's not. That's, oh, that's Russian applique armor. Because the German applique armor doesn't work. Not against what the Russians are bringing to bear. So they bring the Russian stuff on, put it on the leopard, and that's the beginning of the end. Uh, because now you've basically screwed the system. You know, it's not going to work. The, the, the Russians have these modern tanks that are designed to kill Challenger 2s. Yeah. Okay. And that's what people need to understand. The leopard tank, it's an old system. That means that the T-72 MB modification that they have out there was designed to kill it. The Russians have systems that are designed to kill everything NATO can possibly provide the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian systems, because they're given the old stuff without any of the new add-ons, aren't designed to kill the new Russian stuff. No. It's a mismatch from the very beginning. Yeah. I, I remember, by the way, you said talking about the F-57s, and in fact, we've actually had information about this, and it's, I think, widely confirmed that the Ukrainians fire far too many shells from them, wear out the barrels much too fast. And they crack and the titanium. Crack the titanium. And, they and, they, and then the nitrogen bleeds, and now none of it works. <laughs> and, and apparently this, they're constantly having to be sent back to Poland yeah. for repair. And, of course, the Russians are able to pick them off anyway quite quickly. So, I mean, you know, it, it, is, it has failed. I mean, the M777 apparently has failed. What about these fighter jets, the F-16s? Are they going to change anything? I mean, they're a pretty old aircraft as well. I mean, I was, you know, I was never much of an, uh, a weapons buff myself, but I remember people at my school back in the 70s in London, very excited about the F-16s. Well, that was a long time ago. That was the 1970s. Yeah. Now, I'm assuming that the F-16 of today is not the same as the F-16 of the 70s. But, I mean, it's conceptually, presumably, based on the original aircraft, is it going to make a difference? Can it make a difference? Let me put it this way. If the most modern version of the F-16 produced by the United States, with all the bells and whistles on it, all the avionics, etc., with an American-trained pilot on board uh, who is communicating to an AWACS aircraft that has command over the battlefield vision that has satellite satellite connectivity so it can see deep um, um, and is operating an area uh, out of an airfield that's protected by an integrated air defense that's going to provide a modicum of protection um, if it took off against the russians um, it would be shot down eight times out of ten because it's not that good of an aircraft um, it's it, it if you get into close you know, you know, the kind of famous, you know, Top Gun dog fights. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, well, maybe that's not how it works today. Today, the MiG-31 takes off and looks out there. Uh, the Su-57 takes off. The Su-27 takes off and the Su-34 takes off or 35. And they all look out there, uh, look down, shoot down. F-16 takes off. And even before it gets to operational altitude, missiles are coming it out 150 kilometers away that's the reality you will never see that which kills you um <clears throat> so that's that 
Let's say it even takes off, though. Where's it going to land? Because that airfield is not going to exist by the time it finishes running this little pathetic suicide mission. Now it's going to come back. And if it lands on the airfield, A, it may probably crash because it hits a rock. And the F-16 is not designed to hit a rock. It's designed to operate on a perfectly flat thing. The other thing is foreign objects. Uh, For an F-16 to take off from an American airfield, you have to sweep the airfield in advance for FOD, foreign object damage. You don't want to suck in that giant little, you know, intake valve sucks in things. And if you leave a screw, a rock, a pebble, piece of shrapnel, sucks it into the engine, which is a very high maintenance engine. And that's the end of your F-16 because it's a single engine aircraft. So once the engine goes down, it's done. Um, And that's the best case. Now you're giving the Ukrainians an F-16. Let's look at the ones they may get first. They probably will come from the Netherlands. That seems to be the direction. Um, the, The Netherlands have said, we're not ready to give them to them yet. Why? Because it's the, 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 the F-16s they have are just now finishing their 24-year operational life expectancy. So the, the Dutch, because they love the Ukrainians so much, have to let the F-16 die first, meaning it's beyond uh, its operational use. So now this old F-16, 24 years old minimum, is going to go off, and now the Dutch will go in and they'll upgrade it. This is like going to a used car. You, know, you want to buy a Jaguar. Oh, I want a Jaguar but I'm going to go to the used car salesman. And he's going to wait till somebody brings in the Jaguar that's already broken, done. He's going to take it in there. They're going to spray paint it, put the new car smell in it, uh, anchor with the engine so that you don't see the leak, and then say, hey, and you drive it off the lot going, I'm in a Jaguar. The Jaguar doesn't work. So that's what's going to happen. Any F-16 that the Ukrainians get, it ain't going to work. The, the airframe is already overstressed. The landing gear is overstressed. Everything about the aircraft is overstressed. The engine is overstressed. These engines are high maintenance on the best days. uh, And you need the crack American maintenance crew. That ain't going to happen. So you're going to get these F-16s. They're going to go into Ukraine. They're going to operate from what? Um, An improvised airfield, which is where most of these things are taken off. They're taken off of highways. Um, The Russians don't have to do anything. And they're all going to die. They're all, you're going to take off, break, land. They can't operate. But the bad thing is the Russians are going to shoot them all down because they can't fight because there is no AWACS connectivity. Yeah. These planes are taking off, and they're going to operate on their own. They're going to vector in, line of sight, uh, maybe try and get some communication with a guy on the ground. And, but the Russians are going to jam that communication. These things are going to go into a battle zone dumb. They're going to get shot down by Russian air defense. If they get up too high, they're going to be shot down by air-to-air missiles. And if they try to go back to their airfield, there's not going to be an airfield left for them to go. Again, we talked about this with the with the this stuff. We are making the Ukrainians weaker by giving them F-16s. It's the worst mistake in the world we could make. It's not the right aircraft for the job. We would let me put it this way: the Su-27 is a better air-to-air fighter than the F-16. The Ukrainians know how to fly the Su-27. We should be trying to get them SU-27s. We should be trying to get them more MiG-29s. And if we can't get them that, then we should be telling them to change their operational design to fall back in on (coughs) better integrated air defense. And we should stop trying to patch together something on the fly. Why we sent the Patriot in with the poor training, it's a purely automatic system. Understand it. You know the history of the Patriot. It's linked to safeguard. Safeguards in the 1960s era, weapon system designed to shoot down uh, ballistic missiles as they come in, had a nuclear warhead, and it was on automated mode. 
so that as the missile came in, the system took over, fired automatically. Automation was the name of the game. Then the Army said, hey, we want to adapt the, pa- the safeguard to the Patriot. It was an automated system, highly complicated. Do you know why it takes 90 men to man a Patriot battery? Because it's overcomplicated. It's too complicated. The Americans have to train all the time for that. But um, now we give it to the Ukrainians. The only reason why the Patriot has a chance of working is if an American operator can get in there, shut off the automatic mode, go to manual control mode, and override all the stupid stuff that the radar is telling him to do, use his brain to weed through the crap and then send the missile off when it needs to be sent off to shoot down a target, maybe. Um, but the Ukrainians don't have that training. They know how to turn it on. That's it. So the Russians come in, send in their attack, and the, immediately they fire off comes in a panic mode you saw it at the end of the video (laughs) panic mode full automatic fire off its entire missile complement and then bam dead why waste your time doing that um if you're going to do it do it right rather than sacrificing three patriot batteries which is what we've done um why not still have the ukrainians at fort sill um or 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 or, uh, you know i think fort bliss um white sands out there right now going through realistic modes, teaching them how to do the manual operation and teaching them what happens when an AWACS plane sends out its signal and you pick it up and it's a false signal. So you don't waste missiles teaching how to override, teaching how to tweak and all that stuff. You could do that in a couple months and then get it in there and it would be ready. Had we done that, Ukrainians might be able to use the Patriot more effectively than the suicide pill that it has become. But we rush everything in there. They get no training. The system's too complicated. And uh, the end result is not only do they not have air defense, but now they have a system that was designed to operate with air defense, with no air defense, and the Russians are just picking it apart. What happens next? I mean, there's some suggestions that, I mean, I don't know whether we have another uh, uh, British Army officer who's also an MP, by the way, Tobias Elwood. He's, uh, uh, I believe he's the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, but I might be wrong about this. But anyway, he's come along and he said that um, they're going to stop in Zaporozhye, they're going to stop in the south, the Ukrainians are now going to attack in Donbass, and this is where the next big attack is going to happen. Does that have any more prospect of success than this uh, offensive that we've seen so far in Donbass? I mean, are all the same problems that you've already outlined, are they all going to replicate themselves? And can you just simply switch offensives from one axis to another? I mean, is is it something that you can do quickly and on the fly in that kind of way? If you're General George Patton and you command the Third Army, um, if you remember one of the great moments in American military history is during the Battle of the Bulge, where Patton uh, in three days was able to alter the axis of advance, pivot and move and secure the liberation of Bastogne. Um, You you might be able to pull that off. Uh, Ukrainians aren't going to be able to pull this off. Um, First of all, they're, they're, they're not advancing into an overextended. And remember Patton was advancing into the flank of an overextended German uh, offensive bulge that had no fuel, no ammunition, ran out its logistics, and basically uh, collapsed like the house of cards that it was. Um, the Ukrainians are moving from one impenetrable barrier to another impenetrable barrier. Mm-hmm. You're still not going to change the reality that there is no effective air defense. You're not going to change the reality that the Russians have overwhelming artillery supremacy, uh, that the Russians have air superiority that gives them firepower supremacy uh, with these glide bombs. 
uh, and the fact that the Russian troops are ready uh, for this. They're, they're well prepared. Um, no, the Ukrainians have no chance at all, zero chance uh, in succeeding. They're just going to butcher themselves, lose more men, uh, etc. cetera. Um, Ukrainian counteroffensive will run its course by um, the end of this uh, month, um, early July. There won't be anything left. They only had 12 brigades trained up already. Um, you know, 30% of those brigades are combat ineffective now. Um, how many brigades are in the training loop as we speak? None. None. There's nothing there. Um, there might be a couple companies worth, you know, people getting ready for the Abrams, for the 30 Abrams that we've promised them. Um, they might be holding some guys back to bring in uh, the leopards that the Germans are promising them. But the idea that they're going to have 12 brigades coming in to resume this offensive is, is ludicrous. It's, it's over. Um, so the, the, the key question is, when do the Ukrainians call it quits and how much of this force do they retain? Because if they continue to buzzsaw, remember, and the timeline's important here because Vilnius is taking place in, um, in July, the, the NATO summit. And that's where the counteroffensive, that the whole purpose of the counteroffensive is to create a political environment for NATO to recommit to the Ukrainian cause. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what the dialogue is in Vilnius uh, if all 12 brigades are dead and then everybody's looking around going, well, what do you got left? You already have the Danish and the Dutch saying, we ain't got nothing left. There's nothing left in our stockpiles to give you. We have nothing. We have to dedicate ourselves to rebuilding it. The Germans are at that point right now, too. <coughs> the same thing with the Americans. Um, you don't have equipment out there for 12 more brigades. Even if the Ukrainians could piece together the manpower, let's say you did. You just replicate this situation over and over and over again. Um the question is, what is Russia going to do? Um, you know, what, what you know, they, and to me, July becomes a critical month because if the Ukrainians burn through these 12 uh, brigades and they're done uh, in terms of strategic reserves, uh, understand that the Russians haven't even begun to deploy their reserves yet. Uh, they still have, I always read, you know, you go on the Ministry of Defense website and you always have, and over here in Volgograd region, we have the, uh, the mobilized guys going through the final pacing of their offensive operational training. And I'm like, wait a minute, guys, it's, uh, it's May. <laughs> They're still training for the offensive operation. So all the guys that you have in there fighting the defensive war are just that. Guys who have been there waiting. To, there's a whole bunch of other Russians out there with all good stuff, T-90s, Terminators, everything, waiting for their offensive operation. And that's going to be the key. Um, what Russia does on the on, on its counter counter offensive um and that's going to determine it doesn't mean that russia wants to do this because i think one thing that we've learned is the russians are um casualty averse they they they, they don't they're not going to be doing big era war um this isn't this isn't world war ii uh, they're not going to go rolling in there and taking casualties uh so whatever they do is going to be in a, in a very controlled contained thing but you make it easier if you destroy the Ukrainian army in this counteroffensive. You make it much easier uh, to uh, to do things um, like that. Everybody, everybody, sorry, everybody. When one talks about this, they talk about Kursk, the Battle of Kursk of 1943, uh, when you know the Soviets waited for the Germans to come, and only then, after that happened, did they launch their counteroffensive. And of course, Kursk 
by the way, if you follow the timeline, led directly to the recapture of Kiev just a short time <laughs> yeah. later. I mean, I'm not saying, but I, I don't think this is a particularly good parallel myself. I, I actually read a uh, comment by a Russian commander who's in the Chechen forces, but he seems pretty senior. He said that um, he thought that they would do exactly what he said. They'd go for incremental, steady, methodical advances. And he gave a timeline when he said he well, wasn't obviously saying this for certain. And lots of things could change and go wrong. But he thought that perhaps August, September of next year would be the point where it all finally uh, came to 20, an end. 2024. 2024. And of course, it did strike me that that was just a few weeks before the American presidential election. Now, whether, whether he was dropping any hints there, I really don't know. But there's an area... There's an interesting uh, thing to build onto that because, yeah. look, I am not afraid. Remember, I'm an analyst. Yes. All right. I'm not a crystal ball. No. And I, I have always believed that the that the Russians had to that that the worst thing in the world for the Russians would be to to move into the winter of 2024, yes. uh, because that would create an operational pause. Uh, give NATO a chance to rebuild, et cetera. Yeah. But one of the things that that's looking at it from purely a military standpoint, yeah. purely military. The, the the one thing that has always puzzled me is the political end game. Yes. What yes. is the political end game here? How do you denazify? And I had a fascinating conversation with a, a guy uh, who, who's involved in the political military bureau in, in Russia. And um, he was talking about March 2024 yeah. as a critical time. And I said, well, why? I, I believe the war will be over by the end of summer of 2023, early fall. The military defeat will be done. And he said, yeah, that's a military thing. He said, but what do you do about Zelensky? Well, how do you denazify? How do you get? And the easiest way to denazify Zelensky is to have him defeated at the polls, to have him lose an election. And March 2024 is when Zelensky's up for re-election. And um, I suddenly realized that the Russians might be playing a longer game than I've been, uh, than, than I've been doing, that the, the political aspect of, of conflict termination um, may already be uh, designed by the Russians, meaning that they're going to create the conditions for the political collapse of Zelensky and the people who promote this war and seek to let the Ukrainians pick mm. a solution, um, which then means that this this other military timeline, because uh, were you talking about Opti? Is that the the guy you were talking Abdi, about? The, Abdi, Abdi who is not a very sharp guy. Most, yeah, very sharp, but perhaps not the most senior person. And I'm going to suggest no. uh, somebody else who's been speaking, who's the most senior person of all, who's Vladimir Putin. Now, he's made yeah. some very, very interesting comments recently. Firstly, uh, shortly after the drone attack on Moscow, which, by the way, I, I don't know what your views about that were, but I, I thought that was a, a ludicrous and stupid and foolish flop. But anyway, that's my own view. But anyway, I agree. <laughs> uh, Putin, Putin used some very, very interesting words when he talked about Ukraine. He talked for the first time of the territory known as Ukraine, uh, which yeah. seemed to me, you know, this is a, I mean, this is a very radical departure from the way that he's been talking 
uh, before. But perhaps even more interesting was some comments that he made about two or three days ago, um, which was, you know, he was asked about the offensive. And he said, yes, Ukraine's offensive is underway. No, so far they haven't achieved any of their objectives, but we mustn't relax because they've still got their reserve forces ready and, you know, they've still got some way to go. But I understood him to mean in those words, and I know that some of us could think so, that he also said that from now on, it's the military alone, our military, the military leadership alone who make the decisions. In other words, the, the, from this point on, I personally, the political people, are going to just la leave the military themselves to take care of this war, to decide how the war is going to be fought. In the first months of the war, he controlled it very tightly. I think we can all see that. I mean, there was that, I, at the time, I thought it was a bizarre decision. The day after he sent the troops into Kiev, into Ukraine, he, he ordered us a pause to allow time for negotiations and all kinds of strange things. But now he seemed to me to be saying, those days are gone. From this moment onward, the military have the green light to do whatever they consider right and proper in any given situation to advance the objectives further. And again, that seemed to me to be a change. So, yeah. you know, I, and, you know, I, I, I think that might suggest a rather more aggressive approach from the Russians um, from this point onwards. Just, just... No, I, I, I look... Yeah. This is pure. This is pure guesswork. I mean, that's yeah. that's the problem. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I when I weigh things out, I still believe that that the Russians will achieve the objective of the strategic defeat of the Ukrainian military by the end of summer. Yeah. I honestly believe that. I, I don't see how the Ukrainians, especially now that they've committed to this counteroffensive, yeah. I don't see how they prevent that. Um, but the the other problem facing the Russians, though, is. You don't want to run. I mean, one of the reasons why the Russians are, are so strong right now is that they're they're operating doctrinally, and Russian doctrine is sound. Doctrine. I mean, what happened last fall is because the Russians uh, employed their forces in a totally non-doctrinal fashion, sort of haphazard. None of it made sense, and NATO was able to pick it apart, and and, and the Ukrainians were able to come in and compel the Russians to come back. But now, the Russians have doctrinal planners in there, doctrinal thinkers. They're doing everything by the book. And the Russian book is a very good book, um, especially when the Russians have taken the time to pay attention to the details. That they're, Now they're crossing all the T's, they're dotting all the I's, they have their ammunition stockpiled, they have their artillery there, they have the four control teams down, they're able to do thing, everything correct. Um, so I, I believe that they will achieve the strategic defeat, but then the transition to political victory that's where my my brain gets muddled at that point in time because um, how do you occupy Kiev? It's just a military target that can't be done with the forces you have because you would have to suck everything up to Kiev. But then what about Odessa? How do you take Odessa? How do you take Nepetrovsk? How do you take Kharkov? These are major cities uh, that, you know, Russia... And you can only talk about this, I believe, when you talk about the political collapse of Ukraine. And so 
I never thought about March 2024 as a, as a trigger date for political collapse. Um, I always envisioned that uh, Cyril Hukin would continue to do what he's doing, which is to destroy the economy of, um, of Ukraine, to destroy the infrastructure, et cetera, so that as Ukraine, as Ru Russia achieves a military victory by fall, and then as you move into winter, you get the total political collapse of Ukraine, and then Russia rolls in and, and finishes this job by the end of the year, uh, putting in their handpicked government and things of that nature. But even then, I just keep doing the calculus on how much terror, because Ukraine's huge. And um, how do you secure the totality? Because remember, uh, as Russia moves in, the further you get away from the Donbass, the more uh, population base that's not happy to have Russians there, the, the greater density that becomes. And as you approach the Polish border, you get 100% of the people saying, we don't want you here. And now that creates occupation, that creates resistance, that creates all the nightmares that, that come with that. Um, and I just have yet to see the Russians articulate an endgame strategy on the political side. So it confuses me very much how they're going to end this. Militarily, I see a very direct line to the strategic defeat of Ukraine's military by this summer. I think the Ukrainian army will be eviscerated, gutted. And maybe one of the Russian hopes is to get a, um, you know, a, a situation akin to uh, 1917, where the Russian army basically pivoted and marched and uh, and finished the job for uh, for the Germans. Um, we'll 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 see. But um, mm -hmm. you know, the Russians are very silent on this, and I guess um, you know, good for them, because right. the fact that you and I are sitting here scratching our heads means they ain't giving away the farm. No. Now the Russians keep no. their car, car, cards close hold. It's causing consternation in the West. And I think it's smart for the Russians to do that because, again, what's going to happen in Vilnius? NATO is going to come together with, confronted by the absolute collapse of their strategy, absolute total collapse of their strategy. Even the Germans, look at Macron. His number one foreign policy initiative right now is to get invited to BRICS. Yeah. Why? Because G7 don't work anymore. The Germans... Uh, we got to reach out to Venezuela. We got to reach out to why? Because the Western model doesn't work anymore because the European economy is in free fall. The Europeans don't know what the future holds. And one of the reasons why they don't know is they don't know what the Russians want. They don't know how the Russians are going to end this. So I think it's not that the it's not so much that the Russians don't know. I actually think mm -hmm. that the Russians do know what they want. Yeah. But I think that they are keeping their cards very close to the chest uh, to create confusion and uh and promote the political collapse in Ukraine, because that's what's required here. Yeah. Uh, you need the political collapse in Ukraine so that any Ukrainian government in exile doesn't have viability, doesn't have a viable constituency in Ukraine. It's one thing to have a constituency in the diaspora. Yeah. That's what happened with the czarist uh, government. You know, they, they had a, like a, a czarist constituency in diaspora, but there was no czarist um, you know, remnant left in the, in the Soviet Union. And I think for, for the Russians to achieve a political victory, you need to ensure that there's no Zelensky constituency left in Ukraine mm, when yeah. what's left of the Zelensky government eventually uh, becomes a government in exile. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, there, there's, a lot, there's a lot of talk about 
what comes yeah. next. And I noticed that Blinken is now talking about negotiations. Even Blinken is talking about negotiations. He's talking about them in the most aggressive, insulting way. Yeah. I, mean, he, he, I mean, his conception of negotiations is, is um, one which the Russians would certainly find unacceptable. But I, I get the sense that, you know, part of the Russian endgame is, yes, they do want a settlement of the problem of Ukraine. But we should never overlook the fact, I mean, this is my take of this, that where it all started with the Russians was concern about their Western borders. They've seen NATO move closer to their borders. They've seen um, ballistic missile interceptors, which are you know, planted in Romania and Poland. They've seen very aggressive language from the West, which preceded this conflict. I mean, we mustn't forget this. This conflict didn't come out of nowhere in the way some people in the West want us to think it did. Um, and I think what the Russians probably are looking for, this is my own view, is that they will certainly want a settlement in Ukraine. But they will at some point say to the West, look, either you finally sit down and talk with us about the general situation security situation in Europe or when it comes to Ukraine, we will simply dictate terms and decide everything there for ourselves. And you may not like what we do. We might push a lot further west than you would want us to. We might leave you with a very serious headache in what's left of Ukraine. It might be in your own interests eventually to come to terms with us on this European issue. But I don't know whether the US is ready for that. I suspect that some people, Blinken, Newland, Sullivan, well, we know all the people. I, the president himself, I think, might not yet be ready for it. What, what you know, are your thoughts about that? What do you when, you, um, when you talk, if you recall back in the December of 2021, the Russians put forward um, uh, basically, I mean, everybody in the West went, you know, these draft treaties. Yeah. Finished documents, finished documents, ready to be signed. Now, that's not how you negotiate, no. you know, but so everybody's like, well, why did Russia do that? It was genius, pure genius, because today we know what the Russian endgame is. It's right there in the document. That's their new European security framework. They haven't budged from that at all, that consistency from the day one. And now as we approach endgame, <coughs> um, you know, the Russians have a very defined position uh, that will have to be, and more and more the West is starting, I mean, you hear the language coming out of Macron, even the Germans, a new European security framework. We need to talk about a new European security framework, a mindset, et cetera. Things they wouldn't discuss back in uh, December of 2021, January 2022. Today, it's there now. They're, what they call, they're, they're still speaking, you know, Swahili to the Russian uh, Slavic. It's not going to interpret well, but at least they're using the right language. That's a step in the direction. And I think you're 100% correct that the um, Ukraine is just a, it's a major part, but it's not the only part of the ultimate uh, settlement. The, Russia needs to secure its Western flank. Yeah. And it can either do that by, as, as, as Putin's already done, enlarging the Russian army, yeah. Uh, yeah. creating new corps in the uh, St. Petersburg military district, uh, et cetera, um, and making the cost of confronting Russia prohibitive for NATO, which it is, by the way. Uh, you know, 
where is Schultz going to get the, it's not a hundred billion. He keeps talking about a hundred billion. Where's he going to get the 600 billion necessary to get the German army up to snuff? Doesn't exist, which means Germany is going to have to start printing money. Um, which means they're going to violate the basic economic uh, principles that are surrounded in the Eurozone and responsibility and all that. Uh, and we see uh, a, a German politician brought this up to my attention, um, you know, because the Germans are constitutionally prohibited from um, somehow borrowing money for defense. I mean, they, they have, it has to be in a defense budget. It can't just be, but, but they just waived it. Parliament just waived it. So now basically Schultz can hit the printing press and just generate money to pay for this. But it's going to be far more expensive than $100 billion. It's going to be $600 billion, but even approach a trillion. And the German economy is in recession, soon to be depression. And Germany's not alone on this. The French are headed in the wrong direction. The British are headed in the wrong direction. They have a heat wave. I mean, I don't have to tell you. There's a heat wave right now. And the British the um, infrastructure isn't going to be able to cope with this. Correct. God forbid we have a winter, not the mild winter of last year, but let's say a winter that bites this year. No one's going to be able to cope with this. So Russia is in a position where they can actually wait Europe out on this one because Russia has all the strengths, none of the weaknesses. The West has none of the strengths, all of the weaknesses. Um, but it's not the Russians aren't looking for um, total victory. I think the Russians are looking for a reasonable settlement on what constitutes mutual national security. And they've said you must withdraw NATO infrastructure, not NATO, but NATO infrastructure, back to pre-1997 lines. You must get rid of the Aegis ashore system in Poland and Romania. And we must start talking about ABM treaty. We must start talking about INF treaty. We must, you know, and if you want to talk about conventional forces in Europe, which I think is in everybody's interest, rather than spending $600 billion to build a German army that will never exist, uh, you could invest that into rebuilding the German economy. Um, you know, so there's, I think the Russians, they, they, you know, they started this war with a pair of deuces. You know, I'm gonna use a poker analogy, yeah. but they've somehow been able to draw into a royal flush. Yeah. And um, they, they, they're holding all the cards right now. They've got it, a winning hand. But they're not, you know, they're not going to play it. They're going to make it because the longer this goes on, the weaker NATO gets. It's good. Vilnius is going to be fascinating yes. to look yes. at the, the gap between the rhetoric and the reality. Mm. I think the other thing that's happened is that this is exposed in the most brutal way. Something that you've been saying for a very, very long time about the eviscerated state of European and even the American military. And it turns out the America, you know, the U.S. military industrial complex. I mean, you know, we're all being brought up. I have been brought up with this legend of, you know, the United States being able to churn out weapons in unlimited quantities. And people always talk about the Second World War, but I lived through Vietnam. I can remember what the United States was able to churn out during that war. And of course, it was expensive and it caused inflation. But, you know, the U.S. could do it. Now it seems it can't, cannot. I mean, we were sent by Garland Nixon, you know, well, but Garland sent us an article that just appeared in Politico about how the Pentagon is freaking out because China's industrial, military industrial base is now so much larger than that of the US. And uh, we hear every day, and that article also talks about this, the fact that uh, US 
arsenals are becoming depleted and this is causing long-term problems that can't be fixed. The Slovak prime minister said that it will take five to six years for weapon systems to be built up in Europe again. And as you absolutely rightly said, the Russians are rearming. They're building up their military forces at extraordinary speeds. So I think this has been a shock, actually. And I think it's a shock that's going to have long-term consequences. It, it, it might affect a lot about the way the US goes. And I think this is, my again, my own personal opinion. What do you think about this, uh, Scott? But I think that people will say, look, we're back in the situation where we're up against two superpowers, which is what we were at in in the 60s. It didn't turn out well for us then. We've managed at that time to pick the two off, one off against the other, the China and Russia off against the other. We pursued detente with the Russians. We pursued some kind of a rapprochement with the Chinese. It worked for us then. It gave us some sort of space. We need that space now again. Maybe we can never return to the kind of dominant position that we had. But at least if we have that space, that will enable us to stabilize our position, at least to some extent. In which case, you need to do what people like Mr. Charib, the Council for Foreign Relations, are saying, which is you need to end quickly this conflict in Ukraine. You can't let it prolong indefinitely, because the more it gets prolonged, the weaker the United States become. You're 100% correct. Here's Look, again, This, if, if I were advising the President of the United States right now, yeah. I'd say... Um, you know, we have done everything wrong, and we now have created a situation where we, we've driven the Russians and the Chinese together, which is the worst possible outcome for the United States and the West. Because if Russia and China actually truly commit, um, you know, right now they've committed to a non-alliance that's supposedly better than any alliance in the world. But the bottom line is Chinese interests and Russian interests are still Chinese and Russian interests. We see this, for instance, off the coast of Vietnam where Russian gas companies are developing oil fields for the Vietnamese and contested waters and Chinese warships are driving, sailing close. You know, there, there's, there is some friction uh, there. And the Russians are concerned about um, a, a dominant Chinese um, uh, country so close to a poorly populated Far East. And they're concerned about uh, the vulnerab strategic vulnerabilities that exist there. Um, but we are making it um, we're, we're, we're making both the Russians and the Chinese overcome historical obstacles to come, become working very close together, and, and they're succeeding. So if I were advising, I would say two things. One, we need to end our one China policy. Look, one China's over. I mean, it's, it, it, I'm, not, I'm talking about we need to end our fake one China policy. The Kuomintang Party is going to win the election in November 2024. And when they win, they begin uh, real discussions with the Chinese government about bringing an end to this crisis. Um, that's the political reality. And once that happens, we lose all our leverage. So the first thing I would do is send Tony Blinken to Peking and say, how do we begin working with you on not unifying Taiwan and China? That's now our policy. We don't want to do it overnight. It's not going to be irresponsible. But we, we want to begin a strategic trajectory with China to unify Taiwan with China. That's our policy. 
We're ceasing all military assistance. We want to demilitarize this conflict. We want an agreement with you that as we withdraw our military away from Taiwan, you do the same, that we, we, we turn this into a purely political discussion, economic discussion. You will see the Chinese immediately, all antenna go up. You know, the worst mistake Joe Biden ever made, the worst mistake he's made in his presidency, and there have been many, was not to go to the Winter Olympics. Had he gone to the Beijing Winter Olympics, Xi Jinping would have had to pay attention to him. That means that Xi Jinping's not singularly focused on Vladimir Putin's visit uh, there. But by not attending the Winter Olympics, we created a political environment that allowed China and Russia to sit down before the, the invasion and solidify a political understanding that led to this strategic outcome. Um, we could have sabotaged that simply by sending the president to, to uh, Beijing and having him sit and go, wow, what a great Winter Olympics. Hey, Xi Jinping, toast to you, man. Good job. Good Winter Olympics. Good stuff. Uh, and then leave. And that would have created a problem. If we engage with the Chinese, because their number one objective right now is reunification with Taiwan. If we were able to undercut everything by saying, no, we're no longer the problem, we're the solution, and we need you to work with us. And we don't put artificial constraints on like, don't work with the Russians. No. In fact, I would tell them the opposite. Work with the Russians all you want. We encourage you to work with the Russians. We want total economic absorption of Russia by China. That's what we want. Then I would work to go to the Russians and say, we need to end this conflict. We need to get a new understanding in Europe. Um, New European security, you know, and we're willing to do the following, but in exchange, we need you, we, we, we want to reintegrate with you. We want to come back economic. And now what I've done is I've created internal economic conflict within Russia between re-engagement with the West and being absorbed by China. And now Russia is going to have to be put in a situation where it's going to have to define what its relationship is going to be. And it, <coughs> And China isn't willing to go to bat for Russia 100%. And now you've just up, you know, uprooted the whole part. Yeah. This is kind of creative thinking that's out there because now we play to our strengths, which is economic, diplomatic. Uh, we no longer are totally emphasized. In fact, we're de-emphasizing uh, the military, which is no longer our strength. But this requires a deep understanding of both China and Russia and some strategic thinking that seems to be lacking here because – what we believe in is the containment and the pushing back of China. We believe in containment and pushing back of Russia. We believe in the continued preeminence of the, uh, hege you know, the, the hegemony of the um, rules-based international order. And what we don't have are people to recognize that those days are done. It's time for us to redefine the world to our advantage. And if we create a potential of economic conflict between Russia and China, not war, but where they're no longer sitting down together, where when they sit down at the table, they're now competitors. You want to encourage economic competition between Russia and China, not economic cooperation, uh, because now that allows you to come in and leverage some economic strengths of the West that still exist uh, to Russia and to China. Remember, what can we get from China in exchange for Taiwan? We're offering them a $30 trillion value by not going to war over Taiwan. By creating the conditions for a peaceful resolution, that's a $30 trillion value. What can we get from China for that? And the answer is a whole bunch, especially if we do it right. But nobody's thinking like this, because no. Americans aren't programmed to think like this.
no. Henry uh, Kissinger and Nixon. Uh, Kissinger and Nixon could do it. Yeah. I, I have to say, I mean, I can't imagine Biden and Blinken doing it. I mean, you talk, talked about sending Blinken to Beijing to try to open up those kind of talks. I have to say, I, I mean, I can't imagine it. And for the moment, the, the, the Chinese don't seem to, still don't seem to be in any hurry to meet him. They're not, in fact, confirming his visit. And by the way, it seems the Russians aren't in a great hurry to speak to Olaf Scholz. He's apparently trying to call Putin on the phone. and Putin is busy. So there we go. Well, why would Putin listen to him? Did you see that speech where Scholz turned into Hitler? Yeah. Why would Putin even, if I were Putin, I would just say permanently disconnect that number. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll never talk to Scholz again, ever. Yeah, ever. Um, send, send the janitor. I'll talk to the janitor, but I'll never talk to Scholz. Not after that speech. But Putin's a mature man. He's not petty like he's not he's not petty like me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alex, I've been talking with uh, Scott for well two hours. I don't know whether you wanted to. Well, um, Scott Alexander, we have a lot of questions mm. for for Scott yeah. and for Alexander. I just want to know about your your time right now. Do you want to go through these? Do you have time to go through? I'm, I'm, I'm here questions? for you guys. And I think an important part of your success is your connectivity with your audience. So I think it's important that we we maintain that. You want to take 30 minutes then and, okay. and run through these questions? And, yes. Yeah. And, uh, I have 30 minutes left of Diet Coke. So we're, you go. we're you have 30 minutes of Diet Coke. So let's uh, let's go through yeah. these questions. And uh, they are very, very good questions, Scott. So uh, yeah. let's uh, let's begin. From Ted, Scott, is it more likely that the counteroffensive will be used as an excuse to find an off-ramp or for escalation? Well, I mean, again, this is, this is along the lines of what Alexander and I were talking about. Um, if there was political maturity in the West, uh, the, the, the counteroffensive could be used to find an off-ramp. Um, it would provide a perfect opportunity to, uh, to get an off-ramp. But I don't think the West, none of the rhetoric coming out of the West suggests they're looking for an off-ramp. What, what, what we hear is escalation, escalation. Um, the United States is talking about F-16s, attack uh cluster munitions. Um, this is all, you know, uh, very escalation-oriented. So I unfortunately think it's moving towards escalation. Uh, Law of Attraction wants to know, uh, what surprised you during your trip to Russia? economic health. I mean, I like Alexander, I'm not an e economist. So, um, you know, Alexander had a, a, a more solid thing, but I think we we're both on a similar page where we, we were um, optimistic that the Russians would be able to overcome the sanctions. What surprised me is that they've, they've overcome the sanctions, not would be able to, they've done it. Um, and Alexander said something that was very, uh, that I picked up on as well. It's not that the Russian economy is strong, I believe the Russian economy is the strongest it's ever been. Yeah. Uh, it's never been this strong. It's healthier um, that the West through their sanctions policy has allowed Russia to clean up a lot of problems. There's still a lot of problems left to be cleaned up. You don't overcome all these things overnight, but the Russian economy is stronger. And the longer we continue to seek to destroy it through sanctions, the stronger it's going to get. Um, and then the other thing was, um, and this is where we get a little quasi-emotional, and I, I don't want people to think that I've suddenly become kumbaya, and, and then I hold hands and I, you know, do yoga chants. Um, but, you know, people have talked about the Russian soul, and, uh, you know, and I studied Russian history, I studied uh, Russian culture and all that. 
But I always thought that the Russian soul was sort of this, you know, <coughs> made up thing. Tolstoy talked about it. Dostoevsky talked about it. Pushkin talked about it. But it's theoretical that when you get down to the nuts and bolts every day, there ain't no Russian soul. It's just a bunch of Russian people doing what Russian people do. That doesn't mean it's bad. I'm just saying, you know, that they're more material like we are. They're, they're like, Ladies and gentlemen, let me just wake you up to the fact that there is a Russian soul. It's real and it defines Russia. Uh, it's part of every Russian I met. Um, it, it, you know, it's, they don't know how to define it themselves. You get different definitions, but it's there. And the linkage between the Russian people and Mother Russia uh, goes through the soul. And it, you, if you don't understand that, then you won't be able to come up with policies that, um, that responsibly address Russia, both positive and negative. The Russian soul is real. It's visceral. It's there. And that, that surprised me because I didn't expect that. Right. Uh, Christian wants to know what your thoughts are on U.S. or Poland entering uh, Ukraine. You, you expressed doubt in a, in a live stream with yeah. Ask the Inspector. And this differs a bit from Alexander and, and my interpretation of things. What are your thoughts, Scott? Well, first of all, I think Poland has oversold its relevance to the world. Um, you know, it, it, it saw how quickly Ukraine became a center of gravity uh, for the U.S. Without, without understanding the extent to which we were sacrificing Ukraine. We, we're, we've never helped Ukraine to, uh, to sustain or save Ukraine. We've always sacrificed Ukraine. Ukraine has never been a, um, something that uh, we're willing to sacrifice everything to allow it to live. We've been willing to allow Ukraine to die to further our interests. And Poland misunderstood that. And Poland now seeks to, to become the center of gravity of Europe uh, and use the United States to make it so. And what I would tell the Polish people, and this is what I said, is uh, we're, we're not there for you, Poland. We're not going to die for Poland. And we will sacrifice Poland just like we've sacrificed everybody else. Um, the Poles should not overplay this card. Um, and the other thing the Poles need to understand is that they're not well loved in Europe. Um, you know, it's not like the Germans are willing to bend over backwards to help Poland. France won't bend over back. This, you know, this isn't the way it works, Poland. Um, the only thing that gives you relevance is America's willingness to uh, view you as a frontline state against, uh, against Russia. But understand that when America is confronted with um, geopolitical realities that require a recalibration of our relationship with Europe, Poland will not be the center of gravity around which we rotate. You will go down the toilet of life, just like Ukraine went down the toilet of life, just like the Baltic states will go down the toilet of life. We will gravitate to that which promotes our values, our national security, and the best interest in Poland isn't it. And that's what I meant by that. The Poles are, are reading too much into Fifth Corps headquarters and a brigade headquarters because all of that is reversible. Right. Uh, Rick F. Wants, wants you to talk about MAD. Why do neocons feel MAD calculus has changed since the USSR? MAD is no longer deterrent, but destiny. Well, mutually assured destruction is what MAD is. And it came about in the 1960s during the arms race, uh, where we, um, we and the Soviets just started producing more and more missiles with greater capabilities and a recognition that uh, 
ballistic missile defense systems couldn't stop it. And if we tried to build defense systems to stop it, we'd quickly bankrupt ourselves. Uh, we couldn't afford this. So uh, we adopted a strategy called mutually assured destruction, which basically said that we won't try to build these anti-ballistic missile systems. We're going to leave everything but our national command authority naked so that if we go to war, it's a guarantee that you will destroy our country and it's a guarantee we will destroy your country. Therefore, with that guarantee on the table, it's deterrence. We will no longer uh, want to use these nuclear weapons. And that became the foundation upon which uh, arms, not arms limitation, but arms reduction began. Because now that we acknowledge that mutually assured destruction is there, we begin to reduce the arms. We have brought the arms down from tens of thousands of weapons on each side down to 1,550 uh, on, on each side. Uh, there's, yeah, you can add that with some reserve systems to get brought up, but it's compared to what we had to what we have now, it's it's uh, night and day. And as a result, um, our strategic thinkers, the other thing that happened is mutually assured destruction happened in a time when we feared the Soviets, we viewed the Soviets as our strategic equals. Um, the 1990s uh, caused us to um, view the Russians as a defeated enemy um, in, a, in a paper tiger. We, we, uh, we, we worked with the Russians to reduce their nuclear weapons, but we never respected the Russians. And sometime in the early 2000s, we had people that began to say, why are we spending so much money on nuclear weapons if, if we can't use them? Uh, we can't leverage this. And so we started talking about um, using our nuclear arsenal uh, for non-nuclear um, activities. So whereas, for instance, of weapons of mass destruction, um, one of the, 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 the big things in 1990 uh, 1991 was what did James Baker tell Tarek Aziz <laughs> when he said, Hey, by the way, when we roll through you, which we're going to, if you use chemical weapons, what will happen? And the answer is he pretty much said, we will nuke you. And um, I don't know. Um, people should pull out the, uh, the original top secret uh, desert storm plan and see if they can find the nuclear annex. Cause there was one. We had nuclear weapons in theater and there was a plan to use them. So, you know, so now we're talking about using nuclear weapons in a non-nuclear environment. Now, people would say, well, that's justifiable. You know, you deter it. And it worked. The, the Yankees didn't use um, chemical weapons. OK, but now we've taken it even further where you have people now talking about if you launch a cyber attack against the United States, we could use nuclear weapons to deter that. Um the one thing I know is that a cyber attack isn't going to destroy the entire world. It'll make life inconvenient, but a nuclear attack will destroy. Are we willing? Are we really saying that it's our policy to kill 30 million people because our life became inconvenient because of a cyber attack? And the answer is yes. During the Trump administration, when this policy gained even more credence, we understand that Barack Obama always said that I didn't like what George W. Bush did with this policy, but you had eight years to reverse it, Barack Obama, and you didn't. In fact, you capitalized upon it by continuing to allow the development of weapons such as the W76-2 low-yield nuclear weapon, which was developed during the Obama administration. It was fielded during the Trump administration. It is a weapon designed to be used against Russia. Indeed, the first time that it was tested from an operational planning standpoint <coughs> was a war game where Mark Espers, the Secretary of Defense, actually initiated the command function to release W-76-2 from an Ohio-class submarine on board a Trident submarine to strike a simulated Russian offensive against the Baltics. So it's a weapon designed to be used against Russia, which is insane. 
that's what it is. Um, during the Trump administration, a deputy um, secretary of uh, defense, uh, whose name I can't remember, uh, gave a, a speech where he said, the purpose of our doctrine is we want the Russians and the Chinese to wake up every morning not knowing whether or not America is going to nuke them. That's an actual quote from an American official in the Trump administration linked to this policy, which means we no longer fear mutually assured destruction because we've always viewed the Russians, for instance, as a, um, as, as a weaker nation. But Vladimir Putin, who has, you know, Alexander, you brought up speeches that you listened to. I mean, he gave a great speech, I think, in 2018, where he introduced new categories of weapons. And he talked about how we got there, ABM treaty, the INF treaty. And he said, for years, we've, we've said, listen to us, listen to us. And you didn't listen to us. He said, are you listening now? You know, as we deploy these systems. Um, Russia right now has nuclear superiority over the United States. That doesn't mean that they can win a nuclear war because we have submarines. And our submarines, uh, for the moment, give us a lethal retaliation capability. But the point is that our missile defense systems don't work against the Russians. The Russians have more strategic opportunities, uh, and they can inflict a greater amount of damage on the United States than Russia can inflict, or than the United States can inflict on Russia. Um, which means we're right back to mutually assured destruction. The guarantee now, there, there, there was always thinking that there could be a limited nuclear war, that we could contain a Russia by. We always accuse the Russians of things that we do. Escalation to de-escalate. You hear that in America. Oh, the Russian policy is to escalate, de-escalate. They're going to drop a nuke to create uh, you know, the, the, the impression that they're willing to go all the way and then we back down. But we're not going to do that. We're going to go one up. And Putin has said, we don't play that game. One nuclear weapon used against Russia, we use all our nuclear weapons, the world ends. Um, we will be martyrs, meaning he, he says, all Russia will die. You're going to hell. Uh, because you started it. Um, and that's the Russian nuclear policy right there in a nutshell. Mutually assured destruction. It's a guarantee. If we use a single nuclear weapon against Russia, the world ends today. And the Americans haven't woken up to that reality. We still have people that believe that we can launch a preemptive strike against the Russians. The scary thing is uh, you have Russian uh, nuclear planners, now strategic planners, that are looking at the perceived and perhaps real Russian superiority with their the systems now um, in terms of precision, rapid strike, et cetera. They believe they can launch. Some people are saying Russia should here be prepared to incorporate the notion of preemptive nuclear strike into their dock. And that becomes very dangerous because now if you have both sides forward leaning, one mistake, one miscalculation, one misjudgment, it's all over. That's the most dangerous. I want everybody listening to this program to understand that um, Every day you have is a gift because we are one mistake away from all of this ending right now. You know, the, 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 the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists have that doomsday clock and they have it set to 90 seconds. That's crap. It's less than 0 0.001 second because all it takes is one mistake, one miscalculation, one error of judgment. And this all ends. Everything ends. It's all gone. And if you don't wake up every morning almost puking your guts out out of fear, then you're doing it wrong, guys which means you have to recalculate your approach to life. Stop thinking about how you're going to buy the next car, how you're going to buy the next thing. It's how you get the United States back on a responsible retirement track with the Russians to get arms control back in place. There is no arms control today. The New START Treaty, it's, it's there, but it's not there. It's expiring in 2026. And if there's not something replacing it, there is no arms control, which means this arms race goes out of control. We are all going to die. So, yeah, this isn't just a game. This isn't something that, you know, political scientists play 
um, strategic theory and game theory and all that. This is your life. This is your life, and this is the life of your children, your grandchildren, and future generations, none of which will exist if we don't solve this problem now, right now, today. Lynn wants to know your thoughts about the depleted uranium tank rounds to Ukraine, as reported by the Wall Street Journal. Well, I've always given an oversimplified answer to this, which is when I was in the Marine Corps, I loved depleted uranium. Loved it. Loved it. Why? Greatest tank killer there is. Um, you know, we used depleted uranium in the first Gulf War. The LAV-25 was able to take its 25-millimeter Bush cannon and using depleted uranium rounds knock out uh, Iraqi T-64, T-72 tanks. Tank killer. Um, and when you're a Marine and uh, you're in the Ford Division uh, command post and you have an Iraqi brigade coming at you, and the only thing saving you from being overrun is an LAV-25 commanded by a captain named Eddie Ray, and Eddie Ray's LAV-25s come in and pop up, pop up take out the Iraqi tanks, you're going, God bless depleted uranium, best weapon ever made. I love it. And you do love it. I wasn't by the way, in that command post, but that is a fact of that battle that actually happened. <coughs> I could imagine that if I'm on the front line and I have a Russian T-90 coming down, um, that I want to fire a depleted uranium penetrator at it because that's my best chance of penetrating an armor and killing that tank. Um, these are all true statements. The problem is, though, what are the consequences of using this weapon? It wasn't thought out when we first deployed these weapons. You know, we used depleted uranium a lot in the battle for Fallujah. We used them in the Gulf War. And we ended up dumping um, thousands of tons of this stuff throughout Iraq. And if you take a look at the medical consequences of this to the Iraqi people that live in Basra, Fallujah today, um, the documented instances of birth defects amongst the Iraqi children. Um, suddenly, if you're a Marine, or a warrior who says that I'm here on earth to defend the innocent. That's why I exist. I'm here to defeat evil, to defend the innocent. And I'm using a weapon system that condemns the innocent to uh, centuries of, of horror. Then I can't support that weapon. Depleted uranium is an insupportable weapon. You can't support it. It should never be used. It's a poison. It's a toxin. Um, and when it's used and it, and it, it's in the soil, it's there forever. It's in the dust that they breathe. Go to Kosovo, the high rates of cancer that exist in Kosovo because of the, the tons of depleted uranium that NATO used there, what we're doing to the Iraqi children. So now the West wants to give this to the Ukrainians so they can poison the soil of Ukraine and Russia. It's inexcusable, it's unforgivable, it's, um, it's inhumane and it's a war crime. It's literally a war crime because we know what the consequences are. We are deliberately taking an action that will have consequences for a civilian population for decades to come, hundreds of years to come. Um, it, it's, it's inexcusable. And if you're somebody in a country that's providing this, like every American listening to this, call your congressman, call your senator, leave a message to the Biden administration, uh, no to depleted uranium, not only giving it to the Ukrainians, we need to get it out of our arsenal. We need to get rid of depleted uranium. The Russians have already done that. God bless the Russians for having the foresight to understand that continued use of depleted uranium is condemning the very people that militaries are supposed to protect. I'd like to protect. I'd like to believe that America has that kind of moral compass. Sadly, we don't. Mm. Elena asks, uh, for the West, isn't war with Russia a must at this point? War with Russia? I mean, we are at war with Russia, proxy war. Um, to say war with Russia is a must, you must be able to articulate the positives that come out of this. Because continued conflict with Russia 
um, with that, with, with conflict being uh, the only possible outcome, meaning that as you do one form of contact and you lose, you must articulate another form of conflict and on and on and on. It means eventually you're talking about force on force. But that's the only outcome. And when you have force on force, I can guarantee that a force on force conflict will lead to one side using nuclear weapons. The side that is winning will not use nuclear weapons. The side that you're losing will use nuclear weapons and then it will be a general exchange and we all die. So if you say that the only hope we have is a conflict with Russia, you're basically saying you want to commit suicide. I don't want to commit suicide. So I would say that the only option we have is to seek ways to avoid conflict. Uh, Mobius asks, are people going to start being locked up? or even being neutral on either Russia and or China, I'm getting really scared of the visceral hatred being shown towards both countries, especially China. Well, Russophobia is a disease that I've talked about for some time now. Um, uh, China, we, we saw how, how uh, the United States is capable of going down that path during the pandemic. And if you remember, it's the Chinese flu, the Wuhan flu, um, and then the stupidity of, and the prejudice that uh, the American people were capable of exhibiting towards all things Chinese. Um, should we be concerned about that? Of course, we should always be concerned about it. If you live in a democracy where um, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of uh, association are constitutional rights that uh, define who and what we are as a people, any erosion of these is an erosion of what the country stands for. So, um, yeah, I'm concerned about it. You should always be concerned about it. Am I fearful that it's going to happen tomorrow? I'm not fear, fearful of being locked up. I'm fearful of continued ignorance. That um, What I'm fearful of is that the majority of the American people will allow themselves to be manipulated by mainstream media into accepting without question an anti-Russian, anti-Chinese uh, posture that um, enables continued bad policy that puts us in a bad, bad way. You don't need to lock us up. You just need to keep us stupid. And um, right now, unfortunately, we've all seemed to have taken, most of us have taken the stupid pill. That's why I'm grateful for shows like the Duran because it's, uh, it's like a vaccine to stupidity. Sparky says, Scott, thanks for setting a great example with your Russia trip. As you know, setting the example is one of the most significant leadership components. And connected to your uh, Russia trip, Sanjeva says, Scott, did you encounter Russians who are still eager for approval from the West. Previously, Russians had this complex where they perceived themselves as inferior to the West. Has that changed? Well, you know, we're early on in this transition. So um, I would say that um, prejudices and preconditioning that existed pre-sanctions is still there un under the surface. But, um, you, you know, in order for for any idea to, uh, to to gain traction, you have to have something you can hook onto. You know, so let's say Russians have down in their heart somewhere down here uh, the desire. You know, we we still want to be part of the West. <laughs> the West has to actually provide something that I can hook onto to gain to gain traction. We're not. We're we're providing nothing. Um, and the 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 more we continue this, the deeper that goes until it's gone. And I would say right now that. Um, Amongst the vast majority of Russians, um, the desire to be uh, appreciated by the West, to be part of the West is, is gone. There's sadness, but there's no longer, um, you know, the kind of deep sorrow. They, 
you know, whatever the 12 steps of recovery are, uh, they're well into that. They're, they're, you know, they're, they've accepted it. They're moving on. Um, and that's a shame because um, we could have done so much with Russia. Uh, we, 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 we could have done so much. And they, the Russian people, um, once you get to know them, um, these are good people. They're just like everybody in the earth world is good. I mean, I, I have trouble, you know, finding a place where babies are born evil. You know, actually babies come into this world sort of pure and it's, you know, what they're subjected to that shapes them. Um, uh, the Russians, they, they have a good, a good cultural foundation on its own volition. Russia produces good people, really good, kind people. And um, the fact that we're not um, allowing ourselves to uh, work with these people, live together in, in, in prosperity and, and friendship is uh, is one of the great tragedies of our time. Sam says, question for Scott, big arrow offensive to finish it before the West has time to react or continue the attrition, even though it emboldens the West to keep escalating. What do you think the Russians will do? And what do you think they should do? Well, big arrow offensives um, imply lots of resources and the potential for lots of casualties. And um, the Russians aren't geared to absorbing those casualties right now. Um, you know, if you launch a big arrow offensive, let's say Russia's gone through all this sacrifice now absorbing this counteroffensive to achieve a strategic uh, advantage. Why throw it away with a big arrow offensive, which if it goes wrong and big arrow offensives can go wrong quickly, uh, suddenly um, levels the playing field or worse, gives the advantage back to Ukraine. Um, I, I, Alexander mentioned this earlier in talking to some people um, and, and I agree with them that the, the more logical point is that the Russians will go forward in a very methodical base, uh, making sure that they, they accrue all of their advantages in a, in, a, in, a, in a containable area when and then move forward, never overextending themselves, never creating the potential for a large loss of life or a large loss of resources. They, they made that mistake early on in this conflict when they, when they rushed in too quickly they made certain assumptions. As a result, they suffered many thousands of dead who didn't need to die. They lost a lot of equipment that didn't need to be lost. <clears throat> I don't think the Russians are going to make that mistake again. Sparky says, Scott, I remember we were trained specifically to kill Russians, but I don't remember us enlisted soldiers hating them. It was nothing personal. You stated you were trained to hate them. Was it different for officers? Uh Hate might be too strong of a word, but we were ideological enemies. I mean, that is a that is a reality. Uh, an important part of everything wasn't just. Uh, I mean, you know, hatred has no place in war, especially if you're an officer. Because once I allow hatred to uh, become ingrained in my Marines, that means they they are preconditioned to commit war crimes. Um, uh, I need Marines uh, able to commit violence, lethal violence. Um, but I, I need it to be controlled so that when I say stop, they stop. I need them to be able to self-regulate so that when an enemy puts up his hands and no longer uh, constitutes a threat, that they are treated uh, in accordance with the laws of war uh, as prisoners of war, treated humanely. Uh, if you hate people, there's a there's a difficulty, you know, uh, bringing that to bear. So hatred is not something that we we ingrained in our Marines. But I have to be honest that when I went to, for instance, Soviet military power week. Uh, in Washington, D.C., which was a week-long um, um, forum sponsored by a defense intelligence agency, uh, we had 
uh, people from the CIA, from the DIA, we had defectors come in and they uh, would always define the Soviet system as evil, evil. And the problem when you define something as evil is how am I supposed to respond to that? Um, you've now made it emotional. You've now made it more than just an intellectual exercise. You've brought in base emotions, good versus evil. And so now I, 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 I not just am designed to kill them, but to treat them as um, you don't respect evil. You hate evil. And so maybe it was different for the officers. But I can tell you that, you know, my experience, for instance, with Soviet Military Power Week in my experience with almost every um, every strategic uh, branding of this conflict, this ideological conflict, was a good versus evil um, nature, which carried with me when I went to Russia. Because when I first landed in Russia, I was still thinking of the Russians as the evil. Come on, Ronald Reagan, the evil empire. I mean, right off the bat, you see the definition and the problems that accrue with that. And so... Yeah, I, I agree with Sparky that the, 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 the Marines weren't trained to hate Russians. Marines were trained to close with and destroy the enemy through firepower maneuver and, and repel uh, any attack with, you know, the bayonet. Um, but, um, but the other thing, too, is understand this. You know, we never went to war against Russia. We never did that. So I never, anytime I dealt with my Marines in a Soviet um you know, context, it was on the training field. So we focused on tactics, focused on operations, focused on the professional stuff because I never had to have a, get a Marine prepared, jam a bayonet into the gut of somebody and look them in the eye as they die. I never had to prepare a Marine to, you know, pink mist a Russian um, to wade through them uh, in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Every war that America's fought in, we dehumanize the enemy. I mean, just think of what we did in Iraq, the terms we used for the Iraqis, raghead, camel jockey, all the things that you do to bring them down to being less than human so that when you finally close with them, you don't view them as human because it's very difficult to kill a human being. <laughs> you don't want to. It's, it's, but if you look at him and you say, he's just a sand and there's an N word there, or he's just this, he's just that, pop, pop, and you move on. I think I just knocked out my camera. I don't know what I'm doing. Am I still here? Yeah, we hear you. But we don't see you. Yeah, I hit my computer and it decided to um let me see what I did here. See if I can get it back. I don't know why I hit that computer so hard as I did. But um <laughs> I don't know how to let's see. Um Well, I'm going to unplug it, and then I'm going to plug it back in. Can you still hear me? Yes, we can hear you. We hear yep, you. and we can see you. Okay. I won't hit my camera. I won't hit – see, I, I speak with my hands, so I do this. Again, the bottom line, though, is um, killing is a, is a whole different thing. There's people who have uh, written books on this uh, and, the, and the psychological impact that killing people have and how you have to actually prepare people. Uh, we do that today with uh, with with – the whole electronic approach, we view war as a video game and a lot of things we do, we desynthesize people to killing by getting them conditioned to just killing digital things. So when they transition to humans, it's automatic and they don't feel it. Um, 
I never had to condition Marines to get ready to kill Russians. So I never had to teach them to hate. Um, and I don't know how that, how that works. Um, you know, people who operate in Afghanistan, I'd really like to hear about how they viewed the Taliban, how they viewed uh, Pashtun society, the people that operated in Western Iraq after a while, how they viewed ISIS, how they viewed Al Qaeda. Did they view them as humans worthy of, uh, of, 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 of human love and respect, or did they view them as uh, objects of hatred? Um, you know, non-human events, uh, you know, entities that could be killed. Whole different discussion, but uh, yeah. Um, we have a lot of questions about uh, the Defender exercises over Germany. <laughs> yeah. what, what are your thoughts there, uh, Scott? Look, it's an air, it's an air exercise. Let's just, let's get down the basics here. Anybody who thinks that NATO can assemble air power sufficient to defeat Russia and Ukraine is smoking a lot of dope. All right. So even under your best day, NATO can't do it. This exercise will prove my point. Look at the logistical preparation in this exercise. Look at the complexity of the operations just to accomplish a few basic things. You know, it's a big deal to get airplanes to move from one part of Germany to another part of Germany. Just moving airplanes around, getting them to take off and talk to each other. Um, and they're doing this without being bombed, without electronic warfare, uh, without anybody trying to shoot them down. If you tried to, if people are going, they're going to use this as a cover and they're going to move it in on the Russians. No, they're not. First of all, there's not enough airplanes to do that. They would lose all those airplanes in the first three days of war, along with all the bases that they operate under. This isn't a cover for anything. Is it the stupidest thing that NATO could be doing right now? Um, look, NATO is, a, is an organization that's coming face to face with the reality that uh, at one point in time, they had a beach body. Okay, back in the 1980s, 1990s, NATO could go to the beach, take off their shirt, flex, and people go, oh, my God, look at the abs, look at the abs. Wow, what a big body. And now NATO goes to the beach, takes it off, and what they see is an atrophied old man. NATO has no muscle, no nothing. The F-35, again, let's look at this, this exercise. I want to see how the F-35, the kind of sortie rate it performs in a training environment. What's the maintenance requirements of this? How many hours of maintenance per hour of a flight? Um, and then what are they exercising it to do? Is the F-35 being used for all of its propagandized capabilities? Or are they limiting the goals and objectives uh, to, to get a positive outcome in the after-action report? Because that's what all exercises are. They're about the after-action report. Because the after-action report defines budgets, policies, et cetera. Please don't think this exercise is anything more than what it is. It's a NATO propaganda uh, effort. It has nothing to do with genuine operational capabilities. Okay, so we have a lot of questions, Scott. Um, what I'm going to do is a lot of the questions are um, there. There, a lot of people are asking pretty much the the same types of of uh, of themes. So I'm going to just try to to summarize what uh, what more, most of the questions are about, so we can at least get uh, get an answer from from Scott while we have him with us. For example, a lot of people are asking about a type of peace or a way to wind down this war, like what Danielle is, is asking. Is there any chance for peace, uh, Scott? How does this play out? How can this thing be be wound down? Well, you know, I, I wrote an article uh, the other day on my Substack. I don't, Alexander, did you see it about the, the bull finally charged? Yes, um, yes. And I, I use the analogy of, of, of the bullfight. Um, and the sad thing is, as long as we view Ukraine as an arena um, and NATO and, and the Ukrainian government are willing to lead the Ukrainian bull to the slaughter, 
um, there's there's no off ramp. Uh, we will we are willing to sacrifice and applaud the death of the Ukrainian bull, and the, the Ukrainian bull is Ukrainian manhood. I mean, this is one of the ultimate tragedies of all time. I don't understand why people don't understand, you know, comprehend what's happening here. We are destroying the genetic treasure of Ukraine. Uh, we we are taking um, men who should otherwise be chasing beautiful girls and marrying them and making beautiful babies and generate, you know, continuing, um, you know, the, the, the propagation of, of, of Ukraine. Instead, we're slaughtering them, slaughtering them. Um, and as long as that continues, as long as we have had the arena there, it's, it's never going to end. So to stop this, we have to stop viewing Ukraine as an arena and we have to stop viewing, um, you know, the relationship between uh, Ukraine and the West is, um, is, 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 is sort of a team supporting the matador leading the bull to be slaughtered. We have to start respecting the bull. We have to take the bull out of the arena, put it back in the field and learn how to live a nice little, there's a movie or the book of Fernando or Ferdinand, uh, you know, the bull that didn't want to fight again, it's a kumbaya moment. But my point is we, we, we don't have the right mindset regarding Ukraine. When Lindsey Graham can continue to articulate without being eviscerated politically the notion that we will fight to the last Ukrainian, that's a problem. When Ann Applebaum can write uh, articles that insinuate that uh, the best thing in the world is to create a nexus between Eastern European manpower and NATO equipment as the best tool to confront the Russians. What she's saying is she's willing to sacrifice the manpower of Eastern Ukraine for the benefit of the West. We need to start treating the Ukrainian men with the same respect we would accrue to our own men. For all the people out there talking about how great it is to fight Russia, stop letting Ukrainians die for you. If you truly believe that a confrontation with Russia is the thing to do, then volunteer and demand that your country declare war against Russia today. Any American that thinks that it's good to fight Russia should be volunteering to go on the front line with an American division and take the Russians on head on. Do what a man would do. Man up, go to the front line and kill the Russians yourself. Okay, learn what it means to kill people. Go in there and understand that the Russians will be trying to kill you too, and it's going to get ugly really quick. And all your glorified notions of war will end the first round that goes over your head, the first time you're face down in the dirt, chewing it, pissing your pants because you didn't know what war was. And none of you people out there articulating favor of this war know what war is. It's about killing people, about dead people, about guts. About blood, it's about snot, it's about a boy crying for his mom, a man crying for his child. That's what war is. It ain't fun. So let's just stop talking about war as if it's some sort of existential little neat little thing. It's not. It is the worst thing in the world because it's about people killing people. And the consequences of war going forward, you can't even begin to define what it does to the participating in it, what it does to the mother that has to raise children without a father. It does the children that no longer get to go to school. Have we thought one second about what happened to every Ukrainian child that no longer has a normal life that's been displaced? Do we care about them? We don't care about them. We don't care about anybody in Ukraine. So let's stop talking about war. The only solution is peace, and we have to bring this war to a conclusion. And here's the sad thing. The irony of this is that if the West isn't willing to find an off-ramp, then the only choice to bring this war to an end is a Russian strategic victory. And that's the biggest tragedy of all, that the quickest route to peace is Russia destroying Ukraine, because that's the only option Russians has been given. Mm-hmm. I apologize for getting emotional. But I no, 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 no. I, th- I, think, I think we don't have enough of that emotion, actually. Yeah. 
I agree. I agree. Uh, Scott, there's uh, quite a few questions about how you uh, see this war compared, this conflict compared to other uh, conflicts. For example, Tariq says, any correlation between 2006 Israel war on Lebanon and the current conflict? And Angry Warhawk said in uh, a question, this, uh, the offensive reminds, uh, reminds me of Operation Citadel. Uh, do you want to comment on those questions? And, or do you see that this conflict mirrors something else? Alexander often talks about uh, how this is similar in some ways to, to Vietnam, for example, or what happened in Vietnam, certain aspects of the conflict. Well, I'll, what are your thoughts? I'll, I'll, uh, I'll draw upon comments made by General Cavoli, Christopher Cavoli, uh, the commander of, uh, of U.S. forces in Europe and the Supreme Allied Commander, made to Sweden, the, the Swedish Defense Forum, in January. And he basically said that the scope and scale of the violence that's taking place on the ground in Ukraine today was beyond the imagination of NATO. Okay, remember that. NATO is supposed to be the greatest military force in the world, all these wonderful tanks and divisions and all this stuff. What's happening in Ukraine is beyond the imagination. When you bring up... Um, the war in Lebanon, 2006 war. Um, you know, I think the first thing we have to understand is um, the limited the limited nature of the violence. The violence wasn't wide, you know, it was limited violence. Where it happened for the people involved in it, it was a bad deal. 50 Israelis against 30 Hezbollah, 100 Israelis against 40 Hezbollah, things of that nature. Right now, as we speak, uh, there are tens of thousands of Ukrainians fighting, tens of thousands of Russians. Uh, the artillery being brought down is greatest concentration of artillery fires in the history of the war. The precision nature of the weapons is uh, beyond belief. When you have a 500 kilogram bomb hitting the target it's aimed at and blowing up, killing everything there, the death is immediate. It's widespread. It's uh, pre prevalent. Uh, this war is unlike anything that has ever occurred. Unlike anything that has ever occurred. You can't, I mean, every mercenary that goes there comes out and says, I didn't expect that uh, because they came from Iraq. They came from Afghanistan. Yeah, firefight's a bad deal. I mean, bullets are going around, people are dying. You're thinking, oh, that's the worst thing in the world. Well, it ain't the worst thing in the world. The worst thing in the world is that happening and artillery coming down on you and aircraft dropping bombs on you. You can't communicate because it's being jammed. Nothing works. And your only hope is to die. Um, that's what's happening in Ukraine right now. It's a very, very bad place to be. There's no war like it. And this is the future of conflict between large armies. You know, this, the world hasn't seen this level of violence since the Iran-Iraq war, when you have large armies uh, that, that, are, that are fighting each other to the south. But even the Iran-Iraq war, um, the, the very few battles reached this level of intensity because they didn't have the, the same amount of artillery. Artillery is the game changer here. Uh, the accuracy of artillery systems uh, the, the lethality of the munitions. Uh, it's an absolute game changer. And um, we don't, I don't think people appreciate that enough, uh, just how deadly artillery has become. We've always talked about it, always the big guns booming and all this kind of stuff. It's, uh, it's different. So this, this war is not like, like uh, that. I, you know, there are things coming out of this war, drones. I think the level to which drones have been incorporated into, um, into modern warfare from uh, everything from intelligence collection to actually lethality using drones, grenades or kamikaze drones. Um, it has changed the dynamic. It's uh, it's something. I don't have the statistics yet. Um, you know, it'll take some time for it to come out. But, um, 
you know, what the percentage of kills, you know, what's killing what? Uh, what's the number one killer of tanks right now uh, on the Ukrainian front? Is it, um, you know, precision guided artillery munitions? Is it uh, drones? Is it other tanks? Is it mines? Um, I don't have that answer yet. So it's hard for me to talk about, you know, the, a revolution in warfare in terms of, you know, what, what's happening, what's killing what. Um, all I do know is that um, a lot of things are being killed and that uh, the war that's there is, uh, it has a level of lethality that um, we, we haven't right. seen since World War II in terms of the concentration of death. How quickly 250 men, how quickly 500 men, how quickly 1,000 men can die. Um, and the answer is, in Ukraine, very quick. Right. Uh, Scott, talk to us about the nuclear weapons in Ukraine, the tactical nukes that some uh, people in D.C. are talking about. A lot of questions about, about tactical nukes as an escalation in Ukraine. I mean, to uh, this, this, I'm sure I would refer to that article by Michael Rubin. Whom I'm there's sure there's questions sure about you, Scott's I'm thoughts. Sure you've come, yeah, I'm sure you've come across him, Scott. Yeah, yeah. well, Michael Rubin and I go back um, mm -hmm. to Iraq, and I, um, I don't have too much use for him. And I don't have any use for anybody that, uh, that advocates the introduction of nuclear weapons uh, into, uh, into any conflict, let alone one that can put the United States and Russia together. Um, there, first of all, there are no nuclear weapons in Ukraine. None. Zero. Um, the Ukrainians have the ability, if they wanted to, to create a, a dirty bomb. Um, but that's not a nuclear weapon. That's a radiation weapon, so to speak. Uh, but in terms of actual fissile material packaged properly to be weaponized. They don't. The Russians have nuclear weapons. Uh, they're going to introduce nuclear weapons uh, in July to Belarus uh, in a scheme that mirrors uh, the NATO nuclear umbrella where we have 100 B-61 bombs scattered to five locations around Europe that can be married up to NATO aircraft that can be used to attack Russia. Russia says, good, you want to play that game? We're going to give a we're going to put nuclear weapons in Belarus. We've married it up to some Su-25 aircraft, some Iskander-M uh, missiles. And um, now Belarus has the ability to launch nuclear weapons when we decide they want to launch them. But very dangerous, very dangerous thing. Um, first of all, Russia will never use a nuclear weapon against Ukraine because Ukraine is a Slavic country. Um, um, while there is an increasing hatred for the uh, Zelensky government and for the right sector, for the Banderists, um, you know, the, the Russians aren't going to nuke fellow Slavs. They're not going to nuke the Ukrainians. This isn't ever going to happen. If they were going to use a nuclear weapon, it'll be dropped on Brussels. It'll be dropped on Berlin. It'll be dropped on Paris. It'll be dropped on London. The last place it'll be dropped on is Kiev. So that's that. The United States, on the other hand, let's say there's people that say, uh, Oh, we should get American boots on the ground. Well, let's just go through the following scenario. So the United States takes the second brigade of the 101st Airborne Division, which is certainly, or was a little while ago, I don't know if they're still there, floating around Romania. <coughs> and they say, we have to prevent Odessa from being overrun by the evil Russians. So they send the 101st Airborne, then the second brigade. And as the 101st Airborne makes its helicopter-borne move, um, they lose 30% of the helicopters instantly to Russian air defense. Uh, the other 30%, as they, another 30% as they land, get hit by Russian air power. We project air power in to protect this uh, bridgehead, and all the F-35s we send up get shot down. We lose 60 aircraft in a day. Um, 
Now we have Americans on the ground, thousands dead, thousands dead. Again, we're not used to those numbers. Thousands dead. We'll lose more people in one day than we lost in the entire Iraq war. Uh, and the remainder are going to be taken prisoner. The Russians are swamping them. It's over. It's a scene out of the Game of Thrones. Remember when the Dothrakis charged the Lannisters? That's what's going to happen. So it's gone. The 101st Airborne ceases to exist a day and a half after they were uh, put in there. Now America says, oh, my God, they get the uh, separate 2nd Brigade of the 1st Armored Division comes rolling out of Poland. Uh, you know, hey, it's a heavy brigade. It's American tanks. As they come in, they're hit. They're blown up. More air defense down. And America goes, we just lost everything we got. And the Russians are coming. We got a nuke because that's what we have. We have nuclear weapons. And so we have no choice to nuke them because we've emptied. We have nothing left. So we say, well, God, let's just let's escalate to de-escalate. And so we say, hey, that W-76 or give me one of them B-61 bombs to make NATO's nuclear umbrella look really robust. And so they have a Belgian F-16 load on a B-61 and it comes flying in and somewhere over Poland, it, it arcs off the B-61 and it comes arcing in and it impacts on the Russian. But we loaded, lowered the yield and we weren't going to really, really nuke them. We just tucked down, down to maybe you know, 10 kilotons and we killed 12,000 Russians and we sent them a signal. And by the time we finished that thought of we sent them a signal, it's all over because the Russians just nuked everything. We were all dead. Um, that's the reality of nuclear weapons. There is no role for nuclear weapons in this. Um, and again, I, you know, if NATO wants to take on Russia, then man up, spend the money, build the military force necessary, be a man or be a woman. I don't care what you are, uh, but be, you know, have the internal fortitude to, uh, to say, this is something I'm willing to die for. You know, I joined the military back in the 1980s because I said defending Western Europe from the Soviet threat was something I was willing to die for because I grew up in West Germany. I grew up believing that the Soviet uh, army in East Germany was a threat worthy of the sacrifice of my life and my fellow citizens. I believed it and I was ready to do it. If you all out there think that's what you believe in, then step up to the plate, man. Get in there, do it, join the military, call your congressman, beg for war, but make it a conventional war. Make it one where, you know, it's a force on force. May the better team win. Then don't go to the coward's way out, nuclear weapons, because it's the coward's way out. You're condemning everybody to die for your stupidity. If you want to commit suicide, join the military, go to war against Russia, be my guest. Fortunately, our policymakers understand just how stupid that is. So it's not going to happen. But um, we need to stop talking about it. And Michael Rubin needs to shut the F up. Um, it's just the most grossly irresponsible thing in the world. First of all, everybody brings up the Bucharest uh, agreement. This was a violation of Bucharest. The Ukrainians gave up their nuclear. The Ukrainians didn't have any nuclear weapons to give up. Do people understand that? Ukraine pulled no nuclear weapons. All of the nuclear weapons were pulled by the Russians. And the Russians had the file codes, they had the codes. Uh, and they told the Ukrainians from day one, if you even think about taking over a nuclear weapon, you will cease to exist. We will take you out. What Ukraine did is embezzled the world because they were willing to give those things up originally because they had to. That's how you comply with the nonproliferation agreement. But then they said, hey, we need money. We need the Russians to buy things. We need the West. And so they took these nuclear weapons and they... They basically turned them over as they received money. Go study your history. Understand that it was one of the greatest embezzlement schemes in the world. It was literal nuclear blackmail. Ukrainians never were going to hold on to these weapons. They were never going to become part of a Ukrainian <coughs> uh, defense posture. 
these weapons would never exist under Ukrainian control, ever. So don't pretend that they could have. They never would have. And be respectful of what the Ukrainians did, which is not look for legitimate non-proliferation, but being the greedy, corrupt nation that it is, it's not to embezzle the West and embezzle Russia by trading the nuclear weapons for money. That's what it was. So quit quoting Bucharest. It's a non-entity. It's a non-issue. It was never taken seriously, mainly by the Ukrainians. Well said. Well said. Scott, Scott we've had you on for almost three hours. I'm going to give you three quick questions now for you to answer. Okay. Your thoughts on AI in, uh, in this conflict or in the military in general? A lot of questions about AI. Scares the living garbage out of me um, because there's no such thing as artificial intelligence. At the end of the day, artificial intelligence is influenced by the human factor. Um, it, it, it's, you know, you can make it influenced by stupidity. For instance, if, uh, if let's say we programmed AI to listen to this conversation, absorb what we're saying here, uh, and then it would come out, it would spit out answers. It's influenced by us. Okay. Um, I can have it, for instance, there was just a recent example about uh, AI giving bad medical advice to something. I don't know the, the, the total aspect of it, but it was basically uh, because it was monitoring certain chat rooms, uh, it started spitting out bad medical advice. They had to shut it down because it was giving the wrong advice. Um, I don't trust AI. You know what I trust? This year, this year, what's in between it. Um, it has its own inherent checks and balances. Uh, I like the idea of having this kind of discussion. This is the best uh, intelligence forum is having people talk through the problem. The second you rely on a computer, you stop thinking. You become lazy. Um, I, I, there's still an experiment I want to run with chat GPT. I guess that, that's a thing, um, you know, because college kids are using it to write college papers. And I'm, uh, I'm just always curious because I do a lot of original research that requires me to dig deep to get to the truth. Um, does chat AI or chat GPT um, dig, do the deep dig or does it take the easiest route out? As this computer goes out, is the algorithm designed to search for the truth? And how does it find the truth? Or does it look for the most popular concepts and bring that back and encapsulate it as the truth? Uh, and now artificial intelligence becomes a prisoner to prejudices. And it's not intelligence, it's stupidity. Um, and, and we should never allow artificial intelligence to have any role in critical decision making. It should always be the human factor. We should always, at the end of the day, be able to say, time out, stop doesn't make sense. doesn't make sense. But the second we tell a, a computer that you're in charge because you're artificially intelligent, uh, that's the beginning and the end of the world. Um, I'm, I'm not a big fan of AI at all. It's a tool, like anything. It's a tool that can be used. But as long as you view it as a tool and not the solution, um, then, 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 then you might have... You know, you might have right. Scott, your thoughts on uh, negotiations? How are negotiations going to uh, happen, considering best, the Russians? Best value? question. Best yeah. question ever. Look, yeah, I went to and, Russia. And, and your thoughts on the security guarantees as well that yeah. you were talking about. Yeah. I went to Russia selling a book. Um, uh, the, 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 the book was uh, Disarming the Time of Perestroika. And it was a history of the INF Treaty. And I, I was promoting it not only as a history so people can know what happened, but also as a template for the future, saying that, you know, when we have bad relations between Russia and the United States as they exist today, understand that we had bad relations back in the in the 80s. And yet through the INF Treaty, through negotiations, we were able to come together and work our way out of it. And therefore, we could use arms control again. But the problem is, and the inherent flaw in my argument, um, is that INF Treaty 
is the treaty that gave birth to dovrei no povrei, trust but verify. Trust, trust. There is no trust today. I mean, you take a look at this, this, this Ukraine conflict, Minsk Accord. It, it's now, it, it's just clears the nose on my face, and it's a pretty big nose, uh, that the, the, the West never took Minsk seriously. It was always a sham, and it's not me assessing it a sham. That's Merkel saying so, Halin saying so, Poroshenko saying so. The three main signatories to the agreement saying, we never intended to make this real. We were using it to buy time to build up a Ukrainian military to better confront Russia. <coughs> So how could Russia ever trust Germany, France, or a Ukrainian government? Again, the United States, Anatoly Antonov is the ambassador of Russia to the United States. He was also the uh, lead negotiator for the New START Treaty. And talk to him about uh, that negotiation. Talk to him about how Russia said, hey, uh, before we move into this, we need to integrate missile defense. We have to talk about missile defense. It's an important part of our calculus. And we're not comfortable about entering an agreement about uh, reducing nuclear weapons further unless we bring this into play because we're fearful that you're going to put a system in place that as we reduce our weapons, you will then be able to shoot down all of our weapons and achieve nuclear uh, supremacy. And um, the Obama administration said, ah, you know, this is a pretty tough one for us guys uh, politically with the Senate. Um, we need to separate two issues. We need to do one first, then we'll do the other one. Trust us, we will get back to missile defense We'll be able to remember Obama famously turning to Medvedev and saying, hey, wait till the elections and I'll have more flexibility. All right. And the Russians went, okay. Antonov, he negotiated the end game on New Start, got it signed. Then he begins the process of trying to um, talk with the West, to engage with the West on missile defense. And he was told, yeah, we ain't doing that. Ain't doing it. We lied straight to the man's face. We lied to him. How can he ever trust us again? Not only that, but because, because of uh, the, the Russians bought into the notion that, that, that we would talk about missile defense, they allowed things to be rushed through on the treaty um, that should have been challenged, things that the United States has exploited. For instance, how we decommission uh, vehicles, very nebulous terminology. So with the B-52Hs, um, you know, there's basically, we, we have... You know, we put these markers on them. I guess they're little fins on them so they can be visually identified as separate from conventional B-52s. But it's a basically a computer system that attaches to the targeting system. We cut the wires. <coughs> and we said, there, it's no longer a nuclear-capable armor. And the Russians went, yeah, it is. All you have to do is put the wires back together again. Are we this stupid? And the Americans went, it's not in the treaty. It just said we had to remove that which made it such and it's verifiable. We cut the wires. And the Russians are going, no, no, no. It's supposed to be done, um, finished. Like, you cut the airplane in half. And now it can't fly. Therefore, it's decommissioned. And we, we lied. And the Russians are going, guys, this is a big problem for us because that ain't really decommissioned. You know it. And you know how they knew we know it? Because American generals would go before Congress and brag to Congress. Hey, yeah, the Russians good on this one. If there is a crisis, we can double the amount of deployable nuclear weapons overnight simply by reconnecting a wire and putting the weapons on them. And we've doubled the side of our ha, 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 those stupid Russians. The Russians are listening. There is no trust. Not, and here's the problem with the Russians. I can't even say to them, hey, um, it's just the Biden administration. 
all you have to do is wait till 2024 and you get another administration. And the Russians will say, yeah, but the treaty tends to be you know, 15 years long. So let's say we get the other administration and then they're gone in four years or eight years and we got another ministry and they're going to go back. It's the system, the American system. It's a system based upon, based upon deceit, lies, distortions of the truth, manip- manipulation of fact. We don't know how to be honest. We used to be honest. I have to tell you, when I was a weapons inspector during the INF Treaty, uh, we were assiduous in terms of our um, the, the instructions we received to adhere to the treaty, to adhere to the treaty. That The treaty was the Bible, and we couldn't. And I was a stupid young intelligence officer who went into the middle of Russia or the Soviet Union and went, holy cow, this is like a chicken, like a fox in the chicken house. There was a whole bunch of stuff I could do here from an intelligence perspective. And I came back with harebrained schemes. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's do this. And every time I brought it up, slap me down. They said, we don't do that. That's not what we're here for. And I was educated real quick. They, they threatened to fire me at one point in time because they're like, we don't want people thinking like you. Fortunately, my boss came in and said, um, forgive him. He is young and stupid and uh, he will learn. And I did learn. I learned that when people say we strictly adhere to the treaty, we mean we strictly adhere to the treaty. And uh, that was a gospel. And that's the way I was raised. That's why, not to get too far off base, but when I went to the United Nations, you know, I knew that the U.S. government was playing a wink and a nod game. But I got them to tell me right up front, am I here to play wink and nod or am I here to do the Security Council mandate? And they told me, your orders are the Security Council mandate. And when you tell me that I am to adhere strictly to a treaty, which is what a resolution on disarmament is, that's what I do. And I don't deviate from that one inch. And that's what ultimately got me in trouble with, uh, with my government, because my government doesn't do that. My government is composed of lying sacks of manure. And the Russians now know this. So here we come down to how do we do, how does Russia ever again engage with the United States? Because they're going to have to. And here's the thing, the trust but verification um, you know, calculus sort of implied equality. Uh, what I told the Russians is, you can never trust us again, ever. And that you're going to have to double down on verification. That if you're ever going to in, engage in, a, in an agreement with the Russians, first of all, there has to be specific guarantees. Um, like you can't back out of this treaty. Um, uh, you know, things of that nature. You can't allow the Americans an escape clause. Um, and, and then the verification is just going to have to be stringent uh, down to everything. And it's, it's going to be tough to get the United States to... Um, buy into that, but we're going to have to because we put ourselves in this situation and never again, even let's say, you know, God had a bad day and I suddenly woke up to be president of the United States. Uh, even if the Russians said, wow, Scott, we trust you. They can't trust America. And the reason is, I, I give, give you an example. Joe Biden ran on a platform of, um, of, of uh, he said, I'm going to make a sole purpose, uh, the sole purpose doctrine our nuclear doctrine. That is the sole purpose of nuclear weapons is deterrence. That the only reason why weapons exist is to deter other nations from using nuclear weapons. And we would never use these weapons unless that deterrence failed and somebody used nuclear weapons against us. So that, and to me, that's, if you're going to have nuclear weapons, that's the policy to have. Uh, two Decembers ago, no, last December, um, I went to Washington, D.C. for the 35th anniversary of the signing of the INF Treaty. We had a reunion of all the inspectors, negotiators, everything. And the State Department, in honor of all, all the work that we did, sent a very senior arms control official there who gave a speech and uh, then answered questions. 
And uh, a question was posed to this person. Biden ran on this sole purpose doctrine becoming it. He's the commander in chief, the most powerful man in the world. Why didn't uh, this become the policy? Was he lying? And what this person said is, no, um, the president tried, but the inner agency wasn't ready for it. Now, that's curious, because when I went to the election uh, booth to vote in the uh, election, I didn't vote for Joe Biden, be up front, but I didn't see the inner agency on the ballot. Last time I checked, it's never been on the ballot. And yet I'm now being told that the inner agency trumps a desire of the president of the United States, whom a majority of Americans apparently voted for. It means that America is not a democracy, that something else is running America. And it's very, very problematic. And this is a reality that the Russians have to deal with, that you can't talk about dealing with administrations. You have to talk about dealing with an American establishment that is corrupt to the core because it's not held accountable to the American people. Scott, everyone wants to know your thoughts on neocons. And to wrap it up, what is your what are your thoughts on BRICS? On BRICS? Well, neocons, I mean, neocons, neoliberals, neo-anything. Um, I'm against them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm in favor because, first of all, the, the, the notion there, uh, it all traces back to um, – American hegemony, American supremacy. Uh, whether you're a neoliberal, neocon, what you're talking about is an ideology that's premised on the dominance of America. Um, and that's problematic, especially in this world. Um, I love my country. I really do. Uh, I consider myself to be deeply patriotic. But um, gone is the day where I uh, accept the notion that we are the shining city on the hill. I've done too much travel around the world. I've looked at too many cities and um, you know, I, I, I don't see us as a shining city on the hill. I, I see us as wanting to be a shining city on the hill. And that's good. That's everybody should aspire to be that. But um, we are really the, um, the putrid ghetto at the base of the shining city. We, we are a crumbling society. We are a crum- with a crumbling infrastructure, uh, crumbling morals. Um, you know, I'm not going to get too far off here, but we've lost our way. And um so the idea that we, with all of these problems, are going to dictate to the world how to live is absurd. Um, I, you know, if New York City solves the problem of the uh, subway system so that it is the equal of Moscow's subway system, then maybe New York City can wag an accusatory figure at the Russians about their subway system. And that's the way I feel about just about anything. The second the United States can point and say, we do this better than anybody in the world. We're the best society in the world. Therefore, we are a model for the rest of the world to emulate. Um, tell me tell me where you think we're the model. Democracy? I don't think so. Um, you know, so when, when, you, when, when you take a look at all at this, we're not there. So I'm against neoliberalism. I'm against neoconservatism. What I am in favor of is a strong America sitting at the table with the rest of the world as equals working out these problems so that everybody's uh, legitimate interests are taken into account, that nobody's left behind. Um, And now we get to the last part, BRICS. Gosh, there it is. There it is, guys. That's the solution. BRICS is about just that. BRICS was created by nations that weren't invited to be part of the G7. 
The G7, of course, is the you know, group of seven, the largest, most influential economies in the world. But it really means that it's the United States dictating terms to six nations to do what America wants it to do. <laughs> and uh, all the other people that weren't in that, they were invited to be something called the G20. And the G20 basically was subordinated to the G7. The G7 would meet, talk, 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 and then they go to the G20 and dictate an outcome of the G20, and they were supposed to execute that. But what is BRICS? BRICS is the G20 minus the G7, the non-players basically saying, now nah, we're tired of playing that game. We're going to play our own game, which is called multipolarity. It's called we will no longer tolerate the system where the United States gets to sanction people because they enter into policies that have nothing to do with America, uh, but America uh, has lost control. Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, made a fascinating statement about Brazil. When Brazil started to talk about dumping the dollar and going to uh, – non-dollar transactions. You say, how can we control the Brazilian economy? If they do this, we won't be able to sanction them. My God, a moment of clarity for an American senator finally being honest about what America is all about, sanctioning people into compliance. BRICS doesn't play that game. This is why everybody is gravitating towards BRICS. You know, one of the greatest signs that BRICS is what it is, isn't Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. That's pretty impressive. The true sign of the greatness of BRICS is Iran in Saudi Arabia. When Iran and Saudi Arabia say we want to be part of the same global economic forum, which talks about not creating animosity, but learning how to cooperate with each other. When these two major oil producers say we are going to work on a unified economic approach to the world based upon mutual respect. That's sort of the thing that you'd like to believe America would be about, but that's not what we're about. We're about dividing Saudi Arabia and Iran, promoting conflict, promoting. So our policies in the Middle East are designed to create chaos and anarchy. And suddenly we have China coming in and saying, part of this BRICS approach to multipolarity, we can have peace break out all over. Isn't that nice? And for once, Asians are saying, yes, that's what we want peace to break out all over. So that's what I view about BRICS. Um, is it perfect? Nope. Um, but it's heading in a good direction. And that's the trajectory everybody should be uh, wanting to be part of. And remember, why is Emmanuel Macron saying, hey, I want a seat of BRICS? <laughs> well, because he recognized that the seat he has at the G7 ain't quite as fancy as it used to be. Fantastic answer. Putin derangement syndrome existed long before Trump derangement syndrome. Oh. Thank you, Sparky, for that. Uh, Scott Ritter, the great, the fantastic, the always engaging, and just a great guy. Scott Ritter, thank you very much for joining us on this amazing live stream. It really was an amazing live stream. Guys, I will have Scott's Substack in, uh, I already have it in the description down below. I would have it as a pinned comment as well as a link to his incredible book that will be as a pinned comment down below. Thank you to everyone that joined us on Locals, on the Duran.locals.com, Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, YouTube, Telegram. Thank you very much to our amazing, awesome moderators. And what else do I have to say? I think that's it. Alexander, Scott, any final thoughts before uh, we, uh, we sign off? Uh, and by the way, guys, we will answer all the questions as we always do in a dedicated video because there are a lot of great questions. But Scott answered pretty much all the, uh, the main themes and topics for this, uh, 
for this live stream from uh, everyone that viewed this live stream. Alexander, Scott, uh, final thoughts? And we'll I just on. wanted to say thanks to Scott for an absolutely titanic live stream. I mean, titanic in scale, breadth, insight. I mean, it's phenomenal live stream. Thank you, Scott, for coming on our program. And let's have you again. Well, I want to thank you guys for inviting me on. I, I, I know this, um, as I become more and more engaged in uh, social media and become more educated about <laughs> this and, and the topics that we addressed, um, there, is, there is a constant um, theme. It is, uh, you need to go on the Duran. You need to go on the Duran. Why aren't you on the Duran? Well, here I am. And I thank you for inviting me. So, because apparently this is, and I agree with them, this is a, uh, a very, very um, influential, uh, an influential for all the right reasons uh, forum for getting a deeper understanding. So I want to thank you for doing what you do and for allowing me to be a part of it. Well, it's our, it, it's our pleasure and, our, uh, and we are very honored to have you with us, uh, privileged to have you with us. And I'm sure I speak for the entire Durand community when I say that. Well, thank, thank you very much, Scott Ritter. Thank you very much, Alexander McCurse. Have a great uh, morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are in the world. Take care. Okay, have a good day.